And welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we talk about growing up with Star Trek in England and pick an episode from the final frontier to reflect on. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Beam aboard and join the crew to access exclusive benefits over at patreon.com slash longrangesensors. And a warm welcome to our two latest crew members who have joined the ranks as one of our founding member patrons. Thank you so much to both Jennifer and Chris for your support for the show. My name is Alastair, I'm British, but these days I live in Canada, and joining me from all the way over in London, England, as always, is a man whose stand-up comedy routine was once spoiled by the Guardian of Forever, who had already foreseen all of his punchlines. It's Mr. Trevor Whale. Hello! Hello! How are you? (laughs) I am doing very, very well, thank you. How about yourself? Oh, that sounded a bit like Mrs. Doubtfire, didn't it? That kind of hello there. (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, not not a typical thing you reference in a Star Trek uh, podcast, but I suppose people are getting sick of me mentioning Transformers all the time, so I <laughs> thought throwing a bit of different pop culture in there for a change. Yes, I'm very well, thank you very much. Um, I've had to sort of Star Trek creep into one of my other things I'm interested in. Um, my football, the football team I support, signed a, a, a person called um, Kirk, um, oh. funnily enough. Surname was Kirk, Charlie, Charlie Kirk. That must be some kind of, hopefully, some kind of ancestor of uh, a certain Mister James Tiberius, potentially. <laughs> it doesn't mention any of any any Star Trek that he had a an, an ancestor that was a footballer. So his, his great grandson may turn out to be named George. Who knows? Yeah, move to Iowa and do all that stuff to perfectly line up uh, with uh, Kirk being born. So, so yeah, <laughs> completely changed nationality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, all that stuff has got. There's plenty of time though. It's like another two hundred odd years, isn't there? So uh, yeah, nearly three hundred years before you know we have to get everything lined up. So and at yeah, that point, what's awful. a country? You know, exactly. <laughs> the, the lines are just going to blur, right? So it's not very. It's not very clear about country. There's an interesting um, uh, one of the great other Trek YouTubers, um, Trek Expertise, uh, did a whole episode about France in the 24th century. Um, oh, interesting. I haven't caught that one. Yeah, you should check it out. Trek Sees is another really good channel, which does really sort of deep dives into like Trek lore and the universe and everything. Also, you know, that's what everybody does, I guess. Mm. The Trek stuff is what we do. But yeah, um, it, it, there's lots of weird sort of vague references to France either still existing as a separate country or something has happened to it. And everyone, all of the different references to it throughout Star Trek almost talk about it like it's gone. Like oh there was this there was this place in the, on Earth that we're all very nostalgic about, but it doesn't exist anymore. And they're trying to reconcile why Captain Picard speaks with a British accent and basically acts like an English per- person. Uh, obviously, it's because Patrick Stewart, you know, he just acted like himself, and that because that gradually took over the whole idea of him being French. But yeah, um, well, they yeah, did try tried... him with a French accent, yeah. and it was very very bad. So yeah, exactly, <laughs> and it would have been awful, right? <laughs> it would have. Um, so you know, people think of old British people. They're European. That's 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 close enough. So there was that, and they actually try and reconcile why French people seem to be English in the 24th century. And there's they're, they're sort of suggesting that maybe there was some kind of a, a deadly, maybe World War Three, like literally bl- obliterated France, and and uh, the UK helped to um, revive France, and you know helped to rebuild it. So there was a bit of a um, perhaps a, a big migration of, of, of British people over to France to help with that. So you have a bit of a weird 
mishmash of the of, of British and French, and you've got French people that kind of have English accents because of it, and yada yada yada. Anyway, I digress. I'm giving someone else a different channel. Way way too much. Uh, way too much um, free marketing here. But, um, <laughs> it's a really great, a uh, really great thing to watch. Check it out. It's a. Uh, there, there are other videos are great um, as well. I I do enjoy the channel a lot. There's a lot of good stuff. I I do need to check out that particular video though. Yeah, it's great. Today, we're going to be looking back at VHS tapes. There's been a lot of them released over the years, and I know that you and I have both owned our fair share. We've touched on them briefly before, and, and today we're, we're going to be doing a deep dive on the Star Trek The Next Generation releases. Yes. The original episodes for us in the UK were distributed on home video by CIC Video. Uh, there were re-releases, which we'll touch on later, but the design of the original Next Generation videos had a distinct style to them. I know I've got strong feelings of nostalgia for them, but what thoughts and emotions do you get, Trev, when you look back at the at the box art for all of those? Funny thing, actually, when I hear the name, just already the name CIC Video, it's one of those um, um, video-releasing people um, or video <laughs> sellers or marketing. I don't know what it's called, whatever it's called. Um, it had a really creepy like logo and, and sound effect. When, when that would sort of zoom onto the screen as part of... When you popped a VHS tape in, I mean, I think most people that listen to this know what a VHS tape and know what it was like to use them, but for any kids, Kazoomers out there that probably were just kids when maybe DVD was like already ubiquitous, you'd obviously pop your tape in, hit play, and then you'd often get like um, a, a, a don't copy the tape warning, followed by, um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And then they're, they're followed by the logo of the, of the, of the uh, distributor. That's the word I was looking for. CIC video and, and it's it's a weird thing. You can look up on YouTube creepy VHS distributor intro logo stuff. And CIC video had one. It was like sort of a really like noise with the the logo zooming in with like a synthesized kind of thing. Actually, more piano-y sounding thing, as I recall. But yeah, it was yeah. one of the many sort of creepy looking and sounding things. And it wouldn't really make you think of now we're going to watch a fun science fiction tv show it was very angry and serious sounding That's, uh, yeah <laughs> uh, serious is definitely where i came to i hadn't really thought of it being creepy but thinking about it yeah because they've even got some chains in the middle of their logo yes yeah which that's right which it, it's not occurred to me now that that's even a thing that actually yeah why yeah. do they have these chains in the middle I need to have a look because i mean they're called cinema international corporation and there's nothing about cinema that really speaks to to chains no, so, um, I don't really understand where they got that from. Um, it doesn't even doesn't even look like the the words, the letters. I see video, so yeah. Um, but yeah, to answer the question, um, I'll, I'll jump back. Yeah, I've obviously very, very, very fond memories of um, CIC video releases. We're probably going to touch upon like what they did with the original series and the original series movies and Voyager and everything later on. Um, but next generation in particular. Um, we touched upon it, as you say, I think in line our first episode, perhaps um, we touched upon, you know, how we got into Star Trek yeah. um, and a big factor of that would have been these VHS releases. And I do just as just to sort of mention it again, because um, it was such a big thing of me getting into Star Trek, um, the next generation in particular. And my dad bought that very first um, release of Encounter at Farpoint. That was one of the first Star Trek VHS tapes I remember we having us having um, even mm. as a family. Uh, me being able to watch the other one was Star Trek Three: uh, The Search for Spock, which again, as you can listen to our commentary, and I talk about that a little bit. If you're a patron, sign up if you haven't, you'll get access to that. But um, 
Yeah, and the artwork was um, a really beautiful looking kind of like a crew, uh, I think it was a painting, wasn't it? A crew montage. It was, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, like an uh, like an assembled crew sort of um, painting. Um, and then it would have like the Enterprise going into warp or something, zooming past them in, in into the top of the video box. And then you'd have the, uh, the you know, the fairly typical Star Trek The Next Generation logo, the, you know, the actual text itself. In, in that sort of standard font that we that was used for next generation like it wasn't colored like you would see it on the tv show it was just like a solid blue wasn't it was typically what it was yeah Although, like, this is kind of like a comic- chromey kind of shine to it where it's kind of metallic blue at the top and then it kind of is like an yeah. orangey gold uh, at the bottom half so Quite it's like reflective yeah very 80s reflective yeah. metal type of look to it yeah, and so it wasn't. Um, it was, they, they, you know, they um, they made it look a bit nicer than it otherwise would if they just went with the plain blue, you know, sort of uh, motif that we get elsewhere. Uh, as I say, the comics would mess around with that a little bit more as well because they had to because if the cover had like you know stuff that would cause a blue Star Trek generation, um, you know, um, pipe to, to blend into the background, they'd have to sort mm-hmm. of change the color of the uh, the, the logo. But yeah, it looked really great. Um, really high quality sort of artwork um and then underneath that there would also be a bit of a space between where this sort of crew almost like a diorama or whatever you want to call it of, of, of the crew assembled yeah. together you've got picard who's kind of front and center with yeah. Riker just over his shoulder and then on the other shoulder is basically the rest of the crew kind of in the background so yeah. it's it is just like they're all just kind of stood together uh, which is is kind of cool, even including Wesley Crusher on the on the cover as well. Yeah, exactly. And it was interesting because on that actual encounter at Farpoint, and um, actually, uh, you know, revising on what I would have talked about last time we we talked about this, um, I sort of said that I think it was around 1988-89 that we picked up that first episode of uh, Next Gen. But it turns yeah. out it was um, according to what what we what we can read online, it was the second of April, nineteen ninety that. Um, Encounter at Farpoint came out on video, and that's the sell-through version. Uh, sell-through is what they would call just a regular retail copy of a video you could just buy in like Woolworths or, you know, Blockbuster Video if you could buy them, buy them if they're selling them there. And w. anywhere Smith. Buy VHS. W. Smith, yeah. yeah. Um, anywhere that would sell videos. Um, but it turns out um, it, it was actually made available in, in the UK to rent uh, actually in 1988 so perhaps you know i read that previously and thought you know that meant everything you know, just the regular um sort of sell-through version was available then but it wasn't it was just uh the rental version actually i wasn't aware there was rental versions of tv shows until much much later yeah i did see a couple in the wild um but that was it like it wasn't like the place that i normally rented from and it was it was this other one on the other side of the village and they had a couple, but it was it didn't seem like they really stocked a lot of them. There was actually a couple of different um formats of the rental release. So there was the four episode versions that were just yeah. at Blockbuster. Yeah. What you would have with the traditional artwork is uh, a diamond shape that would have a scene from one of the episodes listed on the tape. But for the rental ones, they would have a mosaic of four diamonds. Yeah. yeah. And those would each have an image from each of the episodes on there because you would get four. So typically we get two episodes on the home release and four episodes on the rentals. We don't actually know when those came out, possibly later down the line. The original 1988 rental release was actually um, just a single, uh, well, the first, obviously, the first video would have been the, the pilot encounter at Farpoint. Um, 
it just had that on, that on it. And then ones of, of the 1988 sort of uh, series, should we say, of rental releases, um, they would just have two episodes on, much like the, the sell-through videos. But the artwork would be a lot different. Um, in fact, it would kind of change quite dramatically with each release. Like the first Encounter at Farpoint rental release, it would have the regular Next Generation Star Trek logo type that would be at the top. But then it would also, uh, Encounter at Farpoint as an example, just has the cast photo. Mm. Um, on there, not as a painting, just you know, I was going to say Photoshop, but it wasn't Photoshop, and I would have done it, you know, in an analog way, but um, just you know, cut and pasted over a, a star <laughs> field with like um, a painting of the Enterprise D sort of zooming above them. Uh, it looks kind kind of cool. Again, very kind of eighties, um, but looks very cool. And of course, um, rental releases were in much larger boxes. Um, which is an interesting fact, perhaps isn't uh, wasn't a thing maybe in Canada. Or, um, I, I don't really know. You'd be able to sort of give some insight My, into that. Yeah, for, I mean, there's not really much around at the moment. Uh, when you go to thrift stores, they you have a lot of uh, VHSs, but it seems that the most common box was cardboard. Whereas we never yes. had that in the UK. For us, if there was a cardboard sleeve, it was more just because it was a promo tape of some kind. That yeah, you get free yeah. with something else. When you're actually getting a rental or you were getting, you know, purchasing new, it was a plastic box every time. Yeah, um, a, a clamshell box, which was, mm. they were great because they were like really resilient. Um, you know, you could really batter them around and they wouldn't really get too damaged. And like, you know, cardboard is obviously a lot more fragile. There were the, the rental versions were bigger than the sell through versions, which were just about the size of the tape. The rental versions were bigger. Yeah, I think the other thing is that if you did break your, your box, well, the artwork wasn't printed on, it was a sleeve. So you could just take that out and transfer it to another box, no harm, no foul. I think the other thing as well is that I'm kind of glad... It, it, it's almost like I'd wish that there would be more yeah. episodes on the VHS releases. Yeah, I mean, the actual tape would, like, in terms of the actual tape length and how much you can pack into a, a, the cartridge of a VHS cassette is obviously a factor. But I think yeah. there's also there's also different kinds of, of tape, literally, like the material used, um, and also different methods of recording. So they would probably yeah. have to record, you know, uh, the, the, the episodes in a, in a different way, like like a long play kind of format. Yeah. Uh, that, um, certain, which means they were, I think they were recorded at a higher speed to get more onto the tape. And you would have um, certain VHS players would be able to play back those long play um, re uh, recordings. Um, not all VHS players could. Uh, probably not. No. In, you know, <laughs> by the nineties, they all could. But yeah, it was touch and go at that point. I think there was a quality hit as well. But the the thing is, looking in hindsight, I think I'm glad there was only two episodes per tape. Not, yeah, yeah. Not just because, I mean, it, it makes it more expensive. Otherwise, because you're having to buy more boxes, but. Trying to get to the episode you want to watch, that's a lot of fast-forwarding and rewinding <laughs> to get to yeah. them. If there's only two episodes, that made it a lot easier to kind of get through and, and pick the exact episode that you want to watch. Yeah, I mean, um, an hour and a half is kind of a nice sort of round amount of time to watch, you know, um, uh, generally VHSs, you know. I mean, yeah. with the four-episode um, tapes, uh, rental tapes, I mean, you know, you're looking at three hours. I mean, I could watch three hours of Star Trek non non-stop. Um, in those days, certainly. Um, I could now to... want it if I wanted as well, but yeah. Yeah, if you want to um, get to the uh, the fourth episode on the tape, it's just you, you, you just sat there for a while fast-forwarding. Exactly. Yeah. And you touched upon, like, price as well. I mean, presumably, if they were going to have four episodes, they'd probably be looking to charge 
you know, potentially double. Maybe they'll like, you know, give it a, a discount to say, hey, if you buy the four episode versions, you'll get, you know, more for less money. But I don't think they're ever that they never made these available. Um, the, the, these releases available to buy, unless mm. like often Blockbuster would have a clear out of old VHS tapes. But I remember we had a bunch of ex rental copies of VHS tapes, but back in the day. Um, so I had a ton of, I wish I still had them. I had like, I remember we had a whole bundle of, we had like Ghostbusters 2, X-Rental, Back to the Future Part 2. Mm. Uh, I think we had a couple of Star Trek films. I've actually bought some since. Um, I, I never really wanted to get a big collect. There are people that really collect old VHS tapes. Um, I actually went um, a few months ago and I got a, a big craving just to get like some old VHS tapes. And I actually bought a bunch of the uh, Star Trek films on X-Rental VHS tapes. Oh, so okay. I got them the big, big, beautiful, big, big, big boxes. Um mm. Star Trek Three was the first one that was available um, on VHS. Um, obviously, there were you know, the other ones were released late, later on, but um, the first one to actually come in the big rental box was the Voyage Home um, in eighty six, eighty seven. Um, so that's the first one you'll find in those big boxes we've been talking about. Um, and obviously, by the time Next Gen started, it was you know a common thing to to have rental VHS tapes. But yeah, uh, yeah. So the only way you'd really get those four episode cassettes would would be if a if a rental shop was doing a clear out it'd be great when they do that though because often they'll be like you know two or three pounds the tape will be worn as hell mm. <laughs> because, you know it's potentially been rented and watched over and over for years god knows what some of those i mean i've got some of them as i say i might should try pl- playing them and seeing how bad they've gotten in in that time but um yeah um that was great when you'd be able to pick some up for cheap it was obviously a lot cheaper than buying yeah. these new I think yeah. it was was it like twelve pounds ninety nine? I think was kind of the ballpark. Yeah, I that think these it were. was fifteen pound max. I think, but probably around twelve thirteen was the average. Yeah, yeah. Again, mind blowing for people that you know are just used to paying ten pound for Netflix, and then you've got every episode of Star Trek basically at the moment. You know, at your finger fingertips. Yeah, you, and, you, and, you might pay nine pound for two episodes if Wool- Woolworths were doing a sale of <laughs> like an episode tape. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember because didn't the spines have like artwork that spanned the entire set? So when I you line think... it all on your shelf, I, I know that like some yeah. of the movie box sets did. I can't remember if the like each season did. I don't think Next Gen did. I think Deep Space Nine did. It was like a wormhole. Yeah, Deep Space D- Nine yeah, DS9 and Voyager definitely did. I, I, I'm struggling yeah. to remember if Next Generation did, if it, even if it was just the logo. Um, yeah, but that um, may have come in from when they started doing the movie box sets. That might be when they started exploring that. Yeah, the artwork, as I say, um, it, I don't think they really got a grasp of how you know they could make it look really cool like, like on a shelf. But in terms of like the artwork as well, I remember like just like thinking about that first encounter at Farpoint VHS, uh, as in the one that you would buy in a shop, the regular sell-through version. Mm. You'd get like a like like you said a um, a still from the episode. They picked a terrible one for Encounter at Farpoint. <laughs> it was like um, the dude that got frozen near the beginning of the episode. It's just Picard taking the phaser out of his hand. I guess maybe they were struggling to find. Uh, I mean, I don't think that's actually a still from the episode. That might be a part. I think actually a lot of them are, pu- are publicity photos aren't they from the set of that episode that was being filmed that's on the tape but there's also there was like the third one i think it was like the third one released um it was the uh, uh the last outpost and it's got yeah. Riker, and it's just the plain blue background that they were using now that should have been a planet that had a very stormy sky 
yeah, and they the just use the, yeah. that is it but they just use the blue screen shot so it's a very very blue image with not really much going on just Picard and some crystalline rocks and nothing else that's literally before they have like, like applied like maybe the background plate to get the yeah. To get the like, like whatever sky that episode had, so it's just a blue screen. Really, look, it looks terrible. Um, yeah. They didn't really um, maybe, good choices like in that first season for the artwork. For- maybe maybe it is just down to they're trying to choose shots which don't have a lot of effects because yeah, those yeah. effects had probably not been finished. So whilst they could show, say, somebody with a you know with a phaser beam going off, that effect may not have been available to them to even apply for this artwork. I think there was an emphasis on, um, you know, we don't want to show like just the Enterprise or flying through space. It was more we need to show like the crew to get the crew yeah. over as these are the guys that you're watching and these are the to familiarize yourself with the characters and the actual storyline that you're going to be seeing, I guess, like a generic shot of just, you know, I mean, the special effects in those early episodes, there were a lot of the time they'd reuse a lot of shots of the Enterprise. So you'd probably struggle to find things that genuinely differentiate one episode from another that would mm. also look good. So that's probably why they went down that which, that route, yeah. Which is more kind of what happened with the re-releases, which um, uh, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit more later, but they certainly went more for, for that kind of style. But one thing that they did was they did keep a lot of consistency. I hate it when box sets choose a format and then deviate away from it partway through the run. They kept this style throughout the entire thing, but with little tweaks. And because the characters that you mentioned all kind of being laid out were all a painting, they were able to just make subtle changes. So in the second season box sets, Riker gets a beard, but it's obviously the exact same glance and, uh, yeah. you know, and stance that he's, he's got an expression. Um, and then uh, we end up with uh, Pulaski because she replaces Crusher. On there, yes. Uh, Troy uh, in season three gets a new hairdo. You've got Geordie, Worf, and Wesley. They've all got new clothes as well. Um, and then season three, they've also gotten new collars. And Beverly is back on with a, a different picture to the one that they had in the first one. It looks a lot better how she looks on the the season three cover. And yeah, it's funny when you look at Riker, it looks a bit dodgy. It, lo- it does look like season one Riker with a beard added pretty much all the way through through the run. I mean, it's funny because when you there, there's probably one episode where um, he looks like season one Riker with a beard in the show. And that's probably the child. The first episode where he has a beard. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like for pretty much when I mean, we did, the, we, we've covered the, the, the second episode yes. of, uh, yeah. of season two. And from that point on, he basically looks like he does all the way to the end it's like they're, they're interesting those those weird transitional i'm really into like i don't know why i'm fascinated by the the facial hair and haircut changes in yes. star trek because <laughs> the, the, they're obviously they 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 weirdly always signify something big happening in the show generally there's there's that weird spell at the end of season three of ds9 where cisco is rocking the goatee and the hair Mm. And by about the very, like, the adversary, the last episode of season three, he's nearly uh, the awesome Cisco that we would get. Like, <laughs> the, the transition you know, is um, almost complete. The transition, he's got the goat, he's got that right shape, yeah. you know, he's nearly there. And then obviously, bang, in way of the warrior, we've got, like, the best Cisco of all time. Yeah. But yeah, it's, so he looks like babyface Riker because there's, like I say, airbrushed on. You know, maybe they would have, uh, I mean, I think the first version of Photoshop came out in 1990. I'm not sure if everybody jumped on it at that point, the VHS you know, inlay artwork, <laughs> perhaps yeah. they, they did at that point. 
But yeah, um, it does look at some places it works well, like with Beverly, like you say, other places it just looks like they're just adding on stuff on top of what was already, you know, painted many years before. Yeah, like when you've got the uniform color change for uh, for Geordie. Worf's is actually very well done with because obviously it's not just the uniform color, but his sash changed because the real one was stolen. Yeah. Uh, so they had to make a yeah. whole new metal one, which was actually a heck of a lot better. Uh, thank you, whoever stole that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Troy is probably the one who changes the most because her hairstyle changes uh, around season five. She's uh, shown with um, like a gray, her gray uniform on there as well. Uh, Guinan yeah. appears on the fourth season uh, videos as well. And uh, Wesley ends up in his Ensign uniform. And then you end up with just as they've added more characters like Ensign Rowe, um, you've got Alexander, they're kind of squeezed in to the frame. So <laughs> they're a big they're, pile of people. That's it. They're really yeah. struggling to fit all the principal crew uh on to this and and but it, it still looked good it was it's still good and then the final the final oh, box yeah. for all good things they weren't using paintings they were using photo cutouts of the characters as they appear in the future scenes so you get a very elderly picard a very elderly Riker, and and crusher geordie data and wolf um so you're not you're not getting the whole crew it's it's those yeah. who have survived <laughs> to the future yeah Picard's sort of head is very dodgily sort of photoshopped out of the the uh, set photo, put unplanked on top of Picard's like the, the the previous you know the Picard that's been on that 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 cover for years. Yeah, so his head doesn't actually sit quite right. If you look at if you look at the cover, it looks very dodgy. Um, <laughs> it's kind of twisted to the side. Yeah, yeah, um, twisted the side, and yeah, it just looks pretty poor. But what's like interesting is kind of the dates that we have for these things. I mean, we oh. mentioned already that um, season one Encounter at Farpoint came out in, in 1990, um, apparently on the 2nd of April, 1990. So TNG was already hitting, um, well, it was already at the end of season three, I think, by that point. So way, 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 way behind. But by the time um, season seven ro rolled around, um, like uh, All Good Things came out on the 26th of September, 1994. So the VHS releases were so frequent that they actually practically caught up. Well, give or take two or three months, but quite close to um, the original US air date. Yeah, um, I do remember yeah. reaching that point where um, like I was originally, and I, I, as I've mentioned before, I was taping them off the BBC, but there got to be a point where I was having to buy the VHS because... You, otherwise, you'd have to be waiting ages for them to appear on television. They were definitely ahead of where we were at in the UK. And especially as the later shows were uh, exclusive to Sky and had an even later release on BBC, then, yeah, that's that's when I ended up going more all in on VHS. Plus, getting older, you end up with a little bit more money to be able to do so. So that helped too. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if you were stuck on uh, terrestrial television, I mean, you wouldn't... Obviously, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of channels. You're you only really going to be able to watch Next Generation when it was shown on BBC Two, mm. uh, you know, whatever week, and uh, or go and buy the VHS, you know, or you've got, unless you've got maybe, you know, perhaps you've got a friend that's been recording it since day one, you could go and grab the tapes off him or something. I don't really know anybody that did that. So I was, mm. until we got Sky, and I've talked about what a revelation that was for Star Trek, um, mm. up until that point, what are, what are my experience actually of next generation was up until the point was watching it on on uh, BBC as we've touched upon and a handful 
of VHS tapes. I mean, my parents didn't buy, you know, didn't go around buying all the Star Trek episodes when they came out. We get the odd, the odd um, VHS tape here and there if it was in a sale or if it was we heard about some episode. I mean, my dad got the rental copy of the Unification um, not long after that episode aired, I think, in the States, probably oh, 92 cool. when he got it. So okay. I got to see that quite early. Um, but I actually can't remember if I think I probably would have seen bits of season three and four by that point. So it wasn't too much of a jump between having just Encounter at Farpoint as the only VHS tape we owned and then getting that. And years later, that I would get bits and as I got older, as you say, I was able to, you know, grab the odd episode here and there. But by the time I got in late 94, um, my parents got um, Sky. Um, the need to have a VHS, um, VHS copies of these was massively depleted because, you know, Next Generation was shown daily on Sky One. Um, and uh, again, t- we've touched upon this already, but um, I-, I even, the-, the point in time that we got Sky, um, I even was able to catch the last handful of Next Generation episodes the first time they were shown in the UK on Sky, Season mm. 7, literally the last three or four. And then I saw all good things the first time it was shown. Um, so, and then, you know, they would eventually get put into the the general, you know, um, schedule on Sky 1 of being shown daily. So I didn't really need to, uh, the, it kind of killed the need for me to do that. I think I made a point of, of taping a lot, a lot of um, uh, episodes from Sky so I could also just watch them whenever I, whenever I wanted to. Um, so for me, the, the, the need um, reduced um, basically when I had access to Sky. Yeah. Yeah, I, I miss my my copy of Unification because I had the crossover set. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but it was kind of like a, a really tall cylindrical yeah. kind of thing where you had three tapes all facing outward um, in each direction. And it had a picture of a different person halfway through beaming. So the Unification set had Spock in the middle of beaming through. You had Riker for another video which had uh, Sarek and Defiant. And then you also had, uh, I think it was Koloff, uh, one of the Klingons, from, right. and it, it, that was, had Relics and Blood Oath on it. And yeah. when you removed or put the tape back, you got a transporter sound effect. And oh, I used to right. love that. Yeah, so it's, it's always an episode where they had somebody crossing over from another series. There was like a sound chip in there then that literally triggered. When yeah, you- yeah. And and this is the thing, moving house, especially having to move from the UK, there's stuff like this, which sadly I had to leave behind. And so I no longer have. And there was another one that I had, which was a, a big one, which had Data's head. It was just this sort of silver oh, wow. metallic. It was plastic, but it looked Seen metallic. Very cool. Yeah, just a massive head of Data. And it was, I think it was just called the Data Box, which was a, a fantastic looking set as well. And I, I, I do miss those. Did, did you have yeah. any of those sort of feature-length editions at all? Um, I didn't have any of the sort of fancy box sets. Box sets were very, very expensive as well, we need to sort of know. I mean, a box set of like a TV show now, if you wanted to look, buy it, I mean, again, we're talking about Netflix, £10, bang, you've got everything. But if you wanted to go and buy this, they still exist, don't they? You go and buy a DVD set mm. of like season one of Next Generation. I mean, that's like, well, you can go into your local, you know, secondhand shop now and you better pick that up for like, you know, maybe £10, maybe even less than that. Um, brand new, it would have been maybe 20, 30 quid. But yeah. a box set of, say, even just like a, a box set, a common one would be the first six sort of Star Trek films in the early 90s or the sort of early mid-90s. That'd be like 60, 70 quid, um, which yeah. is a lot of money. That's kind of a birthday present or a Christmas <laughs> present kind of territory. And for a whole season... 
uh, of Star Trek. I mean, we're, we're talking about, I don't think they really produced, I mean, they're, they're, they're too impractical to sell, you know, an entire, you know, a box set where they, just, where they just chucked all of the episodes into a nice, you know, sleeve or case or something. You'd be looking at, you know, 200 pounds plus. Oh, um, easily, so easily. Probably more, yeah, exactly. So um, they never really produced those for the, and certainly not in the uh, sort of, the early nineties when we'd be buying this stuff and, and hmm. no, looking at this stuff. Um, I, I did so, like yeah. the, I did like the feature length episodes that they did as well. So, cause when they did the two parters, they released them in special edition videos that where the episode yes. was uncut. So there was no break in between them. It was just one feature length thing. And they had a set of, I think it was like 10 of them. And yeah. I didn't have all of them, but I had most of them. Um, so you'd have ones like Best of Both Worlds and, uh, you know, and, and all those kind of ones. You had All Good Things. I think that was my copy of All Good Things that I had. Um, and you would have uh, just like a prominent character taking up like the right side of the image. And then you would have kind of in behind some warp streaks, you would have yes. some artwork from the episode. They looked really cool. And it was just like this plain black background. It, like they looked premium. I, I don't know how better. else to describe it. The, the lo- even though yeah. the logo was very similar, like the whole thing just looked and felt premium. They looked a lot better than the actual, like the the, the mainline sort of the episode releases. Oh, they did. About with like, like the, the cast portrait and like um, the diamond with the still in it. It looked way better than that. I mean, yeah, it was less cookie yeah. cutter. Yes, basically, you know, it felt like more effort had gone into the artwork for it. It was probably it probably would have cost too much money to be able to implement yeah. that on an on, a, on an episode by episode or tape by tape basis. But yeah, I mean, I didn't really get any of those box sets. Um, I think a lot of the the box sets that would have interested me were ones like you know the one that gets you all the pilots and things like that. But I tended to by the time they released a box set of that, I'd have them all separately, so I'd end up sort of you know killing the reason why I, I would want to get that. The the, the North American releases look uh, interesting. And I, I use the term very loosely. <laughs> I found a store. In fact, there's been a couple of stores that I've been in since I've been in Canada. And I found giant boxes just filled with next generation tapes. And initially, I thought that those were, until I've been sort of reading up just before this, I thought that was the exact format that they had. It was a, very similar to how the Sega Master yeah. System box art looked, where you had like a white grid and then you had the crew artwork that we've been talking about that was painted kind of at the bottom with the more traditional blue logo. And so it was basically everything that we had, but without the diamond shape. But it turns out that that was a collector's edition. But every single tape had the exact same cover. There was no variation at all, which is really a shame. The only thing that's different is just the name on the spine and obviously the description on the back. But for the front, the collector's edition, it just looks almost like a waste for a collector's edition, but it looks yeah, they look so dull. Yeah, and it was a subscription-based thing, so you would you would order and they they would uh, send it out to you. But I have found since that uh, Americans did get a different set of tapes, and I don't know if they ever arrived in Canada. But the artwork, whereas the UK one was the same for every season with some minor tweaks, it was still the same format. There's changed season to season. The first one looked a little bit similar to what we had, but with a circular cutout rather than a diamond shape. And yeah. so the, the pictures were a little bit more prominent. Um, I, they certainly chose different images 
for a lot yeah. of them or an alternative take. But the other thing that was interesting is it was one episode per tape rather than two. That's horrendous. I mean, they got a lot of mileage out of that cast, like um, painting that obviously we got in the UK, yeah. video cover, and they got in the US. An interesting thing about that, I remember we talked about the Marvel um, UK Star Trek Next Generation comic. Um, there was actually one issue of that, which just used that artwork, but like a clean version of the artwork mm. with the, the crew um, next to the planet with the Enterprise streaking past them. So if you want to see like a clean version of that graphic or that painting, uh, it's like issue five of like the Marvel UK Next Generation comic. Have a look at that and you'll see that um, that artwork just in a, in a completely clean. It looks pretty cool without without, you know, the name of the episode and like the um, the diamond with, with the still in there. But it's also an interesting thing about the US. I mean, they, they didn't get video release until about a year after we did um, in September 91 um, was when they started releasing. Uh, the VHS tapes for that of each other yeah. to save like one episode. Um, I, I, I'd love I, to hear from anybody in the US who has, yeah. uh, you know, who used to collect these. And and what did you think of the artwork? I mean, when I look at the season seven one, it looks like you, you know like word art with some three D embossed effect on it with a blue background, and then just a very small cutout for an image. Like it, it looks very very poor in all honesty. But the thing is that we're looking at things from a nostalgic perspective to us. And so for the UK, like that's what we grew up with. So even though I'm looking at this going, well, these, these covers don't look any way near as good. Um, the fact that they were different every season, like every season had a completely different layout. They would use different cast photos. So there's a lot of variety there. And so maybe for you guys in the US, maybe this is actually you know, a much better option and something that fills you more with the nostalgia. I don't know. And I'd, I'd be interested to, to hear if, uh, if anybody has any memories of the US uh, releases and also anybody in Canada who may have also seen these individual releases as well. I don't know if they were available in both territories. And that would get expensive as well because I can imagine one episode on a tape um, you're going to be looking at, uh, I can imagine probably nine, ten, 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 eleven dollars. It could be even more. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, still you, probably about half what we were spending, so it may have balanced out yeah, about the same. But even. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they, taxes also <laughs> would have been more in the UK, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, they, they did change. Um, looking at later seasons, they did change the artwork a bit more than, than what we got. Um, they actually, you know, they used sort of cast photos. Um, the sort of the yeah. each season they would take a cast photo, wouldn't, wouldn't they, of the whole crew? And um, yeah. It looks like they, they went with just having that on the front cover um, on uh, the later seasons. I'm not sure if that's possibly is a bit better than what we got because it's not, you know, constantly photoshopping the same image for years. Mm. But yeah, um, again, we might think that what we had was better. They might think what they got was better. I'm also noticing they didn't get as many sort of different varieties of release. Uh, I don't think they got as many box sets and, and, and as, as much as we did. But I think it, maybe it's a symptom of the fact that Again, our sort of friends in the States and Canada might have some better insight than what we would have. But um, I, I think they probably had the show when it was on reruns a lot more often than what I mean. Like I say, we literally would just get what BBC Two would show once a week. Mm. Uh, and that was it. Unless you taped it, you're not going to be able to watch that again <laughs> until they show it to you again or unless you got Sky. Um, I think in America, though, I could be wrong, but I think maybe when, when a season is uh, finished... In those days, I think they'll probably repeat maybe previous seasons to cover the you know the 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 months up until the new episodes coming out again in the in in the autumn or fall as they would call it. 
So, yeah, maybe they didn't feel they they needed to release VHS copies of these episodes because, well, you better just... They're on so much on regular TV, no one's going to buy them. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what, what the theory was behind that, but hopefully, you know, our listeners can let us know. Well, before we wrap up, uh, I think we'll we'll talk just briefly about the re-releases, which we kind of alluded to earlier. Um, yeah. Because you, you were kind of making a very good point that for the British releases... It was always a photo of the crew. It was a photo of something that had happened in the episode, but it was never the ships. And yes, the re-releases right. had this gorgeous artwork. They, they were released um, around 2000, thereabouts, maybe a couple of years before that. And they would have three episodes per tape, and the artwork was always fully painted, and it would usually have you know, ships attacking each other, flying out of wormholes and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, sometimes you would have some of the crew's faces just taking place on the cover. It was almost kind of like comic book covers in a way. And you would get so oh, much yeah. variety. The artwork, I would love, I don't know if this exists, but I, I would love to get a, a coffee table book of just all the artwork that they use for these covers. But as gorgeous as they were, I don't know how you felt about them, but for me, they felt out of place. And I don't know if that's just because I was so used to the original releases, but even though they looked great, they, they just didn't feel right to me as next generation box art. Yeah, I think in like um, when we got to about 97, 98 time, wasn't it? They started re-releasing next gen. Uh, and I think yeah. each, each tape had three episodes. So I think it was probably a little bit better value for money than what we got originally. Um, but yeah, alongside i think the reason why they really like hammered home the uh, painted artwork was because um voyager and deep space nine had a, a much different sort of philosophy i guess you could say yeah. on um, how they handled their their cover art for the vhs releases deep space nine had a fairly generic sort of thing that they would do the voyager really nailed it i think because that would be um just just um very, it wouldn't really have the crew at all um, until very much like the fourth or fifth season. It would be a shot of Voyager itself, you know, um, doing whatever it was doing in that episode that's featured on the video. So I think they obviously took, you know, I guess the artist that was doing those, uh, whoever did that is awesome. I'd love to speak to him about this stuff. And like you say, though, especially Voyager, some of those VHS covers, I would love to have like, uh, yeah, a book, like, like you say, just to, or a poster or a poster book of some of these. Um, you know, beautiful um, graphics that, that were painted for uh, the, the Voyager VHS releases. But I think it was probably the same kind of mentality for those Voyager VHS releases. I think ended up going into those next generation re-releases. Mm. But yeah, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily the painting that does it for me, but it's like the different style of next generation logo and the sort of, they try to, I think they're trying to do like an L cars type they border did, yeah. around it. But very silver. But it's kind of the wrong color. That's yeah. it, yeah, silver. So it doesn't quite work out. In fact, not even silver, it's just, it's just a plain gray. Yeah, I mean, they might not have been going for an L casting, but it does kind of look at it a little bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't think it looks like gray. I'm not sure what color would work, old color or even just the yellow or something. But I think perhaps if they just went with, I mean, one thing that annoys me about modern, um, mainly movie uh, re-releases of, like, let's just say the Star Trek films, they often don't use the original poster art, although they have recently used the poster art for, like, a special edition. But generally, they use, like, a Photoshop mashup of scenes, still shots from the film, yeah. um, with a new style, like, they don't even use the old font, they use the, the whatever is the you know the, the current star trek font it changes every few years um and it looks crap it looks really crap um i guess i don't think anyone's gonna be looking at the front cover all the time it'll be on a shelf so screw it 
But I really love the poster art for these. Mm. Um, so that's why the VHS, you know, releases were beautiful because they used the poster art for the most part. Yeah. So I think if they just went with that painting, which you know looks pretty good for the most part, mm. with the, the 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 standard next generation sort of font and logo text, um, without any other sort of stuff around it, I think it would look looked a lot better. Uh, yeah. Which is basically what they did with Voyager. It was just the usual Voyager logo with a painting of an action scene and bang. And that, and that was pretty much it. I think that would have worked better. <laughs> yeah, no, That's I agree. Pretty. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So yeah, if, if anybody else has memories of these tapes and perhaps uh, you agree with us or you, you disagree, maybe, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. maybe you actually preferred the re-releases. Maybe that was your first Seb. Please do yeah. get in touch with us and, uh, and let us know. But for now, it is time for us to rewind our tapes and pop them back on the shelf as we're getting consumed by a giant space amoeba in the original series episode, The Immunity Syndrome. Yes, uh, this is season two, episode 19, and was actually chosen by a narrow margin in one of our recent Patreon polls. So thank you to everybody that voted this episode. This this is actually a really really good episode, and as I I don't know about yourself, but as I was rewatching it, I was just thinking about how good so many of the lines are. It's almost a very quotable episode. It's actually um, out of the episodes of of uh, original series we've done. We've also done like a couple really. Uh, mm. This is probably the best one so far. And again, it's not. I mean, we do we said it loads and loads of times. We we make a point of uh, choosing episodes that. You know, um, well, we've already done one that was terrible, famously really bad. Probably Threshold's the most famous episode we've done in, in mm. like a weird way. But um, we make a point of doing those unsung kind of episodes that don't really people on YouTube people don't dedicate entire nice videos to them because they're fam- they're, they're they're famous episodes that will get loads of clicks. And we like to do the ones that kind of you know are, aren't on the radar. And this absolutely fits that. And it's a, a really good episode mm. that um, is quite modern in a weird way. Lots of next generation. It actually reminded me where silence has lease in, 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 in aspects. I don't know if they actually were inspired by uh, the immunity syndrome and they wrote that episode, but I got real strong where silence has lease vibes. And obviously the void just got episodes that take place in black voids. Yeah. Uh, one episode that you called the void, I think. Yeah. Well, and they also had bliss, which was about yes. a creature pretending to be a wormhole so that it could eat the ship. And then you had the cloud, where they enter a nuclear yeah. life form and they believe that to be a nebula and it ends yeah. up attacking them uh, as though they're an invading virus and stuff. So yeah, it, it, there's there's definitely been stuff which I'm sure has been inspired by this. And and the writer for this, Robert Sabarov, I don't believe has written any other original series episodes. He has for some uh, ones for The Next Generation with Home Soil and Conspiracy, but uh, it's, it's almost... Oh, cool. Almost watching this and and just how good the dialogue in this is, I almost wish that he'd written more for the original series. Maybe he would have it have it if it hadn't gotten cancelled. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like we said, it's kind of the first of the ship getting trapped in something they don't understand. Yeah, um, that would be you know used a lot in later series. But yeah, the way it's written, really good. It develops the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy massively. So well, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just brilliant. We'll obviously touch <laughs> upon those individual bits, but yeah, it's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I, I love how it opens with them approaching Starbase 6 and Kirk makes a point about how he's looking forward to a period of rest and he is physically exhausted. You can really see just how, how much he's just, he's been looking forward to yeah. this. 
He's got a lot of annual leave. He's got a lot of annual leave pending. Um, yeah. He's finally got to take it because it won't roll over to the next star year. Um, so <laughs> the whole crew has. Like, apparently, the, the, uh, I guess you book your leave on like the online star, Starfleet portal and has to be approved <laughs> by the, ad, the Admiral or something, some Admiral. Yeah. Uh, so Kirk has got it booked. Well, actually, no, it's the whole crew, isn't it? Is yeah, it's the entire going. crew, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. They, they need a very big clipboard that still has paper on it to, to mark all this <laughs> off. Uh, yeah, it's still the original <laughs> series, so they, they still do that. Um, uh, but yeah, they, they then get a message from Starbase Six, who are basically telling them like this isn't happening today because there's a ship out there, the USS Intrepid, and they receive some coordinates, but it's a bit garbled as to what it is that's happening. Um, but it's it's pointed out that the Intrepid is a ship manned entirely by Vulcans as well yes which is an interesting thing i mean the only other example i can think of is deep space nine when there's that ship that's manned completely by vulcans that really want to play uh beat cisco at baseball yep yep so they were like douchebags so hopefully these all well, these intrepid people are nicer but yeah, yeah. that's it and it, it reminds <laughs> me a little bit in enterprise where they although it's not a starfleet vessel just you know the fact that they come across a, a vulcan manned ship it's not a starfleet uh, ship is it like a like the Enterprise? I think it's literally it's, a, Vulcan. it's a Vulcan ship. But yeah. they arrive yeah. there, yeah. and the Vulcans are very much kind of crazy and zombified, and and all sorts yes. of stuff. Yes. Spock then suddenly collapses, and he senses that all four hundred Vulcans are dead. Basically, like Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, yeah. There's a big disturbance in the Force, and so <laughs> Kirk just orders him to sick bay. And they're ordered on a rescue priority mission to Gamma 7 Alpha, which was where the Intrepid was investigating. And this is all despite Clerk still pleading like, no, we need our R&R. We need to rest. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, Spock says that legendary line, I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. <laughs> that is this episode. That is this episode, isn't it? There you yeah. go. Star Wars ripped off Star Trek. There you go. What I don't know why you said the force, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, straight away saying, oh, loads of people have died, but I'm really, I've booked my, my hotel's booked. I really want to go to, it's obviously going to be Ricer, isn't it? This is Captain Kirk we're talking about. And Ricer is a thing because they they, they know about it in Enterprise. There's a whole Enterprise episode, yeah. Star Trek Enterprise episode. So they're, they're, he's clearly going there. Yeah, he does refer to wanting to be on a planet specifically. Yeah. So. Some yeah. lovely planet. So yeah. well, obviously that's Ricer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after the, the opening titles, uh, there's there's Lieutenant Kyle at the helm. Oh, what a legend. Right, yeah. He's been in a few episodes and he's later the communications officer aboard the Reliant in Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which is yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I thought but, that straight away. Um, yeah. Reunited with Chekhov, of course. It would yeah. have been in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, played by John Winston. But again, it's just nice to see these kind of recurring characters brought back later in the movies uh, as yeah. well. But Chekhov, he does his long-range scan with his long-range sensors. Those, those sexy long-range sensors. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> and, and confirms that everything in that system is dead. Just ever, no life signs at all. Yes. And, and then we get McCoy asking the question that was definitely in my head as well. And that's, how can a Vulcan sense other Vulcans dying without physical contact? Yeah, the the whole, like, Spock's, like, telepathy is really vague and, like, they just add new powers to it. Um, yeah. Like, uh, there's, that, there's that random episode, is it the Omega Glory, where he does, like, a Wi-Fi mind meld through a brick wall? <laughs> and even when I was watching that, I was like, come on, dude. 
That's yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, I, that's ridiculous. I do but appreciate yeah. that they address it though, and he's just kind of pointing out that he can hear the death screams of 400 yeah. Vulcans crying out. He's like, come on, how could you not, is basically the, the emphasis he's, he's given there. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And that he also knew that none of them knew what was happening to them. So they didn't even know they were dying. Yes. So, which is also... a very of, interesting uh, twist on that, which is, yeah. you know, an element of danger has been added there. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit spooky. Um, yes. But but no more spooky than when he arrives back on the bridge and they discover this irregular black shape that looks like a hole in space. And Nagelum again. Nagelum, that's it. Yeah, and he he assesses that it's directly in line with where the Gamma Seven Alpha system and the Intrepid were both located. So it's obviously been in their path. So they launch this probe, yeah. and there's this deafening noise that seems to deafen everybody but Spock. Spock seems to be the only one that can really withstand it. Everybody else has got their hands over their ears. Yeah. It's really loud through the TV as well. I mean, I was watching the, the Netflix version of this, so I had actually the, the, the new kind of special effects and all that kind of shiz bit. The remastered one, yeah. 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 Um, the good thing is, like, like when you see the uh, the sort of dark zone that comes up, it doesn't really look too much different from the original version. They haven't tried to, tried to jazz it up and make it look super CG and cool and everything. It's just like a blob, you know, yeah. just a bit a bit more clearer and yeah the noise was really i'd turn the tv down um because it was really loud <laughs> and then i'd turn it back up again when it went to just regular sort of noise it wasn't very well normalized well i guess it had hmm. to be loud to put really get over the idea that this thing is loud so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it affected me as well i did like that straight after they they kind of say how they didn't get any reports from their telemetry probe uh oh gets dizzy and then almost collapses as she stands up and then McCoy hails the bridge and reports that several of the crew have fainted, which is obviously a little bit ominous. Yes. And there's this great dialogue where Kirk's talking about sending her down and he's like, no, 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 not unless it's an emergency because um, I'm busy giving everybody stimulants. And yeah. it's like, but she's got the same symptoms as everybody else. So why can't? She gets yeah. stimulants. <laughs> and, and, and anybody on like the bridge is technically mega important, probably, and it should probably get done first. Yeah. And, and once you kill the kill someone, like send a, a hypo spray up. Yeah. Like, like someone could just go and grab it and take it up. Like, yeah, <laughs> bit weird. <laughs> yeah. And we see Kirk getting really frustrated and exhausted, and he's not really being himself because, again, this is all just down to how evidently exhausted he is because he's not happy that Spock doesn't have sufficient data about what they're seeing. And the, as the science officer, that in itself is insufficient. Yeah, Kirk's kind of harsh on him here. Yeah, um, yeah. Unnecessary. Very yeah. short fuse. Very short fuse. So almost kind of like uh, in our previous episode where we were talking um, about scientific method, it's almost like there's aliens just with these probes in his head, you know, coercing yeah. him on to... Uh... Making him a grumpy socks. You grumpy yeah. socks. That's it. That's it. Um, <laughs> but this is him just naturally. Uh, Spock suggests asking what it is not in case that helps. And Spock says it's it's not a gas. It's not a liquid or a solid. And Kirk suddenly realizes yeah. that doesn't really help at all. Yeah, it's, it's like, where, okay, what is it not? Like, where, where do you start? Oh, it's not a chicken. Um, it's not... <laughs> Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> it's not a cardboard box, and it's not Aurora Borealis. No. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. he's like, it's not a galactic nebula. So, uh, but then it does seem to be some form of energy that they just can't detect. So it's just like, just start with that 
spark just maybe like, uh, just just like okay some stuff we can't work out instantly just chill right yeah we're gonna scan it <laughs> and, and the hypothesis is that it is what killed the intrepid i, I also do wonder though as well again headcanning this a little bit maybe the fact that spock isn't as direct with it and he does drag it out a little bit for for kirk maybe that is just how spock is when he's exhausted yeah kirk, kirk is brilliant uh, uh, well spock sorry is brilliant because he's not phased by the sort of obnoxiousness of kirk just sort of asking him you know all these stupid like questions that he hasn't which he quite rightly hasn't got a clear answer for um yeah. he's just completely cool and calm and just tells him like you know quite bluntly what he's able to tell him and isn't you know he's like you just have to you're just, you're just gonna have to deal with it mm. this is star trek come on weird I, stuff weird is part of the job Janeway <laughs> said once yeah. <laughs> i i do love how um how kirk says to notify the starfleet and i'm thinking okay like this is still it i mean it's season two and there's still terminology that that changes by the time we're in next generation and later. But just the fact that he's calling it the Starfleet. I was just listening to him thinking, like, how tired is Kirk? Kirk needs to tell the Starfleet that he needs the sleep. Yeah, it's like the, the outside world of like the Enterprise is still quite nebulous. <laughs> nebulous. That wasn't, that wasn't a pun on purpose, by the way. Um, but <laughs> what, what I mean is, yeah, we know there's a Starfleet thing. Mm. Um, and to be honest, we didn't really get a clear idea of the structure of this universe. Uh, I mean, we, we see Starfleet in the motion picture, really. It's kind of probably the first time we really see it. Uh, like yeah. Starfleet HQ in San... I mean, we don't even know where it is in the, at any point, I don't think, in the original season. Someone says, oh, yeah, it's in San Francisco. Um, so, yeah, and, and we, we see it in the Next, next Generation uh, Conspiracy. I think it's probably yeah. the first time we see it. Um, so, yeah, it's still... Obviously, it's season two, but there's still a lot of gaps... And a lot of sort of vagueness around the, the you know Starfleet and the Federation and all of that stuff, yeah, yeah, and just the naming for it. But they, they yeah. fly towards the the nebulous nebula uh, at red alert, and the deafening noise starts happening again. And it's not coming from communications is one of the things that they figure out. And it then looked like, and this is the thing that seemed weird to me is that as they're getting closer, obviously this big black blob is getting closer to the screen, and then they look up and they're shocked that there are no stars. But it just appears as though they're so close that the stars just aren't visible because it's right in front of them. Yeah. And so it, it does <laughs> seem weird. It's like, why are they shot that there's no stars? Yeah, you were looking at something that was purely pure black. You could see, you couldn't see the stars through it. That's it. Yeah, if you, if you go towards it, that bit will get bigger and then it will just be completely engulfing you. <laughs> Come on, guys. This should be supposed to be professionals. <laughs> it's a good episode, though. It's a good episode. Yeah, we're not, we're not throwing shade on it. It's just funny little oh, stuff. So much so. Um, you notice, yeah. yeah. But Kirk's demanding answers from Scotty because there's been some power loss. And he's asking if Scotty's able to c compensate for it. And Scotty's not able to provide those answers for him, which, again, is just feeding into this whole thing for him. And then McCoy finally finally arrives on the bridge with stimulants for the crew. Yeah, I want to know what these are. Because he just calls it a stimulant. I mean, what is it? Is he hitting them with, like, heroin or something? <laughs> like, like what's, you know. Wow. But I'm actually curious to know what, what, what it is. I mean, mm. obviously, it's obviously to stop them fainting. Is that something that just makes their heart go quicker or their blood to circulate better? It, it could yeah. just be caffeine. He could just be injecting yeah. coffee into their veins, for all we know. Possibly. I mean, obviously, the writer, you know, the original writer might not have thought of someone else to come up with that thing, but I guess they just couldn't come up with a good enough 
you know mm. again the, the medical side of it as well is, is ne- a bit nebulous at this point it's not really you know done things like dermal regenerators and you know a high <laughs> well, well we know with the, there are hypo sprays he literally he calls it a hypo spray in this episode um i think yeah. uh but yeah but individual treatments aren't firmly established you know at this point yeah, yeah. but stimulants it's fine we, we know exactly what it's yeah, meant yeah. to do so it's, it's good it's fine and, yeah, and it's it's two thirds of the crew that have been affected by this, so that's a lot of stimulants that have to go on. And he's also inoculating people who haven't been affected yet as well. So he's not just attending to them; he is doing the entire crew as well. Yeah. And then as he's doing this, a crewman collapses at the engineering station, and it's Mister Leslie. It's Lieutenant Leslie oh, from no, uh, Leslie. Yeah, who we've seen and we've spoken about him before in both the Deadly Years and the Galileo Seven episodes that yeah. that we've discussed before. Oh, love Lieutenant Leslie. The uh, Chief O'Brien of uh, original series. Yeah, and he, where he's been in pretty much every single post that he could possibly be. But he's very often at that engineering station. I've got them time. both in this one. We've got Kyle and Leslie in one. Yeah. That's like, yeah. That's like your whole bingo card might fill it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert Saburoff, when he wrote this episode, like he knew what he was doing with that crew. Like It's, it's, thought- it's good stuff. Who are my favourite extras that have turned up a little bit? What we didn't get is like Yeoman Rand. You know, if that would have been a complete like the greatest hits of Star Trek in in, in one episode, greatest yeah. background character hits of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, we we, we, we do get Nurse Chapel. Oh yes, as well. yes, yeah. So we do get yeah. her. Uh, the physical manifestation of the Enterprise D computer voice. Yeah. Yes, and, it is Nurse Chapel. And I love Spock's description when he informs Kurt that the sound was the penetration of the boundary layer. Now that is an innuendo. <laughs> it's basically them just, basically just, we flew the ship into it. It's effectively what that, that was. Uh, so if you're, you know, if you're in a relationship with another Trekkie and you're, you know, doing the deed, shall we say, just say halfway through, darling, that was the sound of the penetration of the boundary layer. And I um, <laughs> oh, don't know how well that will go down, <laughs> but, you know, if it's another Trekkie, then yeah. Just, just oh, well, like there's a great there's a great Voyager quote that's along those lines where Kim says in one episode, having no trouble penetrating the crust, Captain. Oh, well, g- give that a try with your partner and report back to us with how badly <laughs> that failed. That'll be a new segment on the show, innuendos that you could use in real life from Star Trek. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> anyway, Kirk and Spark... <laughs> They've penetrated the boundary layer. Yeah. And, the, and they end up having this back and forth between the two of them, verbally, a verbal back and forth, uh, with Spock giving information in his usual way, where it's very logical, precise, and devoid of speculation. And Kirk is way too tired for it and thinks that Spock is basically <laughs> just having fun with him. Yeah. And Kirk asks for recommendations, and McCoy just casually walks up and just chimes in with, I recommend survival. Let's get out of here. He's probably Wait. right. He's it's the right. smartest decision yeah. of all of I them. And I mean, there's, it happens in like where silence has least, where they're like, is this really a good yeah. idea for us to keep going into this thing? And then someone says, yeah, the Federation could send, Starfleet could send an actual science vessel who could be equipped for this sort of <laughs> shit, isn't it? So probably what they should have done, but Kirk, isn't it? Yeah. And you kind of, I, I thought that he was accepting it and going, maybe that's right. But then he opens shipwide communications and informs the crew. And this is like one of those, you could have just said it to McCoy, but no, you're going to just tell the entire ship that the mission isn't to survive. It isn't to save the ship, but it's to investigate. And he acknowledges that they're all sick and they're getting sicker. 
and that there's no guarantees because of that, but that they do have a good ship with the best crew. Yeah. We know later on he'll consider it the best ship, but right now it's just the, a good ship. Yeah, it, when, when uh, the more people are getting ill, uh, increases the awesomeness of a starship. I think there's yeah. a correlation there. Yeah. yeah. But McCoy has since left the bridge and he hails Kirk. He gets down to sick bay pretty quickly with that. Um, yeah, I'm not, where, where is it in, on the Enterprise? Where actually is sick bay um, in terms of the ship? I can't recall off the top of my head. But I'm sh- yeah. I think he still got down there pretty quick from when he had that conversation to Kirk giving this speech. And then suddenly McCoy is in sick bay uh, and talking that, about how, according to the life monitors, we're dying. We're all dying. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, it's probably I, a thing where you have to be able to get to the sick bay quick, probably. Yeah. Right? From, from no, that's, like, that's fair. The yeah. Bridge. So maybe it's a, 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 one little turbo lift ride and it's first on the left or something. Or yeah. And I suppose it's, it's not difficult to look at those monitors where it's really just little arrowheads that are monitoring various little oh, things. Oh, I love those monitors. Yeah. yeah. That is used so much in the original series. And basically, if they're all down at the bottom, you know it's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if yeah. they're all up at the top, somebody's head's about to physically explode. If it's in the middle, that's your sweet spot. So And, and that throbbing heartbeat noise, like, dung. The, I don't think it's actually used in this episode, but you know what I mean with the red pulsing yep. light. I love those those readouts. They're so like good at their job. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, now in later Star Trek, you don't know anything. They're, they're just on a sick bed, the sick bay bed. There's no pulsing chisel going on. They're just there, and the doctor's got to expo- exposition that that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, they're dying. You know, now now you just I look at the screen. I, I think they do have that monitor, but it's just not as as visually present. Yeah, there's literally episodes of the original series where the Do- Dr. McCoy would be treating a patient and he'd zap, zap them with a hypo spray and the actual scene would play out where he just looks at the monitor and then the camera would cut to the monitor and you'd hear like the the, beat, the heartbeat go up and then the arrows go up um, and that would be it. There'd be no, they won't be saying anything. They'd just literally show you via that, which is kind of a great way of doing it. Um, yeah. Now, you were saying before as well about us watching it on the remastered edition. And it cuts to a shot of the ship from outside. And it is beautiful in the remastered copy. Yes. Uh, it's, it's basically in the void, so there's no stars, and the ship is entirely self-illuminated, both from the running lights and all the windows uh, with the rooms with lights that are turned on. Uh, absolutely brilliant. The original shot just used this normal stock lighting, but it was just against a plain black background. Now... Yeah, um, it really gave me like, um, it reminded me of that Voyager episode, The Void, yes. um, which had lots of really awesome shots of just complete black and just the running lights and, and the windows on Voyager. Yeah. And they recreated that kind of vibe really well with the Enterprise. Um, the shadows that are co- it shows how the lights interact the, on the lights on the ship itself, yeah. um, cast across the ship's hull. It looks beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and I also like how the camera's at the same level as the engineering hull. It gives it a great profile. Um, the original shot, the camera is slightly lower than the Enterprise, and the ship's kind of pointing upwards at a slight upward angle. Yeah. And the nacelles are cropped out of the shot. Uh, but in this new shot, the entire Enterprise is in frame uh, at slight distance. And, and this is the advantage that's afforded to them by being able to remake the entire shots from scratch using CG models. Rather than the cost involved during the original production, you know, to have done that versus just reusing their pre-existing stock footage, which is essentially all that they would have done. 
Yeah, I mean, what I like about these remastered versions as well, I mean, this is actually the first time I've seen a lot of these, so I'm, I'm completely used to the original effects. Um, oh, interesting. I, they, they haven't messed with what was originally depicted too much. No, um, no. They, I mean, they haven't even, like, shown a, a... I don't think there's a huge distinction between warp speed and, like, impulse drive. They haven't tried to put, like, next-generation-style star streaks, you know, next to the ship. Um, whereas, also in the original series, it, they just used the same stock... You know, yeah. uh, well, sometimes it would fly past really quick. That was basically what warp speed was. There wasn't really any dynamic background. It wasn't like the motion picture that you really saw that. Yeah. Um, and even when it was at warp power, like a cruising, it wouldn't really. There wasn't really any difference. But um, but yeah, what I love about it is they didn't really mess with what was there too much. No, they tried it's... to say, yeah, keep keeping that kind of style of effect. Yeah, they, they would do things like fix where a phaser was the wrong color, or they would put uh, warp streaks behind a window that yes. wouldn't have been physically possible then. But it's really subtle things that just help fix and enhance moments rather than replace them with all new effects, yeah, which yeah. wouldn't have worked quite as well. It's um, not jarring, and it kind of fits in. It doesn't distract you from the, you know, the rest of the, you know, the, the live action stuff in the episode at all. Exactly. We, we also have a name for this now, because obviously we've been talking about the Void from Voyager. Uh, they call this the Zone of Darkness, which I, I love. <laughs> I, I feel like somebody just came up with it, and then the entire bitch crew was like, yeah, it sounds right, we'll stick with that. That's, that's uh, <laughs> as good a name as any. And, that's uh, something you would encounter in Dungeons and Dragons. That's it, yeah. And, and so, in the Zone of Darkness. <laughs> Kirk has his log where he's saying, you know, 10 minutes have passed since entering the zone of darkness and they've shut off their engines whilst they can assess the situation and find a defense against whatever is starting to drain the energy on the ship. And Kirk, at this point, enters engineering and the entire ship shakes. Kirk says that he felt the ship lunging forward, but Scotty is reporting that the ship had actually gone into full reverse, which is kind of like a, a weird kind of set up really is to like okay well then what is going on and spark is informing them that the ship is indeed hurtling forwards but the power is all in for reverse power yeah so it's a complete so obviously physics are actually being affected here yeah um, which is yet another thing to throw into the already big like mystery that's not getting any clearer really at all yeah, and, and Spock kind of points out the both the obvious and the ludicrous, which was just will then just increase the speed forwards in that case. Yeah, which obviously goes against every bone of his body of understanding of physics. Yeah, yeah. can he change the laws of physics? Yeah, even as a viewer, you're just kind of thinking, well, if it doesn't work one way, put it the other way and see what happens. You know. Yeah. Um, but they do have What's more lives. Yeah, well, they've got lives at stake, whereas as watching, we we don't really. It, it's not our responsibility, but. This is when we're, we're back in sickbay and Nurse Chapel is here. We've reached Nurse Chapel. And the life function indicators in sickbay are showing that one of the crew members' life signs are really low. You know, the, those indicators are down near the bottom. I don't think she actually talks in this episode. She does. You see she it does. Times. No, she, she does. Talk? She calls, yeah, well, she calls McCoy over and explains that uh, this crew member is, is, is suffering. And so he calls for more stimulants. <laughs> That's just to everything, yeah. <laughs> it's just like more stimulants. Stimulants for everybody. Yeah. Imagine him at a party. He'd be great. He'd bring all the stimulants. <laughs> It'd be amazing. But he just pointed out that he's not sure how long they can keep things up. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're back to Scotty and Kirk debating whether even launching into this full thrust even makes sense or not. Scotty doesn't what believe. What I want to say as well. Um, oh, yeah. 
obviously we touched upon those chapel. I mean, Major Barrett is a friggin' Star Trek legend. Um, <laughs> yeah. doesn't have a lot to work with a lot of the time as Nurse Chapel, but it just kind of gives me warm, fuzzy feelings inside when I see her because she's like basically the mum of Star Trek. Um, <laughs> she's been yeah. she's been first ever episode. She was number one, obviously, in that, um, which was you know a great character that unfortunately we weren't able to develop further. But you could argue probably as a pioneer to have a second officer as a woman that would go on to you know we'd have Major Kira, uh, then we'd have Captain Janeway, and obviously Michael Burnham now. Um, they can all trace their roots all the way back to Major Barrett's portrayal. Yeah, you can be really cynical and you could say, well, it's Gene Roddenberry's girlfriend that he was trying to give her a job, but I don't care because Major Barrett was awesome and she was well, she had the, she has the perfect computer voice that is amazing and is such a part of the fabric of Star Trek. And yeah, I just want to say I just love seeing her whenever she pop, pops up. Whether it was the Wax on a Troy, another awesome character that is, should have had her own TV show. Yeah, um, and yeah, I just love seeing her. I think it's also fair to say as well that just the fact that she was put there, not just because it was Gene Roddenberry's girlfriend, but the fact that that character was written that way. And Lucille Ball, who ran Desilu Studios and is the person who said, no, let's give them a second shot at a pilot, went to the the other executives and says, you need to do this. Partly because she made her studio in the hopes of giving women more prominent roles. And she's looking at the way that women are being shown on the bridge of a starship and it's like that's the kind of show i want to see she didn't even think it was a sci-fi show to begin with she thought that it was um you know that star trek was about going around visiting superstars you know (laughs) that it was a reality show uh but when she saw what it was and how women were being portrayed she's like no no, that's a show that deserves a second chance yeah lucid war was really important in the history of star trek for getting you know getting the show renewed and ultimately allowing it to get enough episodes together to be able to be syndicated and obviously you know what happened when that happened so yeah um, Yeah. really important and major barrett is just absolutely hugely important in um, in star trek yeah yeah and even though we didn't get uh, number one on the ship it was uh at least we got a horror and it was still we have a prominent female and a black female at that yeah Uh, again hugely hugely important which is great so yeah so we're, we're back in engineering, and Scotty and Kirk are debating whether launching into full thrust makes sense or not. Scotty doesn't believe that that's going to be the case, but Kirk is concerned that he'll never live it down if Spock happens to be right on this, which I love. Yeah. So, so that's this whole sole reason for giving the order for it. And Scotty is... It's not said in a jokey way. It's like really no. like kind of serious the way, yeah. the way he says it. He's, yeah. he, just, he just knows that this is the case. This is the logical fact that will happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. He'll never hear the end of it. And Scotty's yeah. surprised to find that it's actually working. They're slowing down, but there is a slight caveat. They are not stopping. It's only it, slowing it's, them down. He's, he's really Scotty-ish in, in this episode. <laughs> Everything he's like, he encounters is like, I, I, can't, I can't believe it. Or is it like, like literally everything that gets thrown at him just baffles him? Yeah. Um, he doesn't actually see, he doesn't say, I haven't got enough. Wait, well, he even talks about power a hell of a lot. Uh, nearly says, I haven't got the power, Captain, but he doesn't say that exact line. But there's yeah. lots of things where he hasn't got enough power, or there's just something that baffles him. So he is like some of the Scotty's greatest hits uh, you uh, get uh, in this episode. Yeah. As somebody who's famed for having lines surrounding not having enough power, 
I mean, it makes complete sense given that the entire premise on this episode is that power is draining from the ship. And he's the he's one constantly giving updates on how little power there is left. Yeah. His primary <laughs> task in this episode is to do with various power levels. So this is the <laughs> ultimate Scotty episode in like a, a, a weird way. Um, yeah. yeah. And obviously James Doohan, Canadian, so probably revered <laughs> in your adopted uh, country right now. <laughs> along, well, along with Shatner, of course. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant actor as well, James yeah. Doohan. Doesn't get enough credit. Scott is brilliant. I love yeah, him. yeah. Nurse Chapel is is pointing out that the patients are stabilizing, so she's giving good news, uh, which McCoy then slams down because he's concerned that okay, they're stabilizing, but still at dangerous levels. Yeah, well done, Killjoy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a doctor, but jeez. Well, people have a go at the, the holographic doc- doctor for being like you know grumpy and stuff, but. McCoy yeah. takes the biscuit. I mean, you know what? We respect <laughs> him, so we don't like. Yeah, he's not. He's not being funny. Like he's literally like just trying to be serious. And like, look, this is like we can't start getting throwing a party yet. We're still kind of That's gonna it, die. Yeah. Yeah. Things are so. Yeah, it's kind of understandable at the same time. Yeah, it's basically things are bad. We're just glad they're not getting worse. Exactly. But yeah. It's still, it's still bad. And and then Kirk decides to hold a briefing with the senior staff, and. All McCoy knows is that the closer they get, the worse it is for the crew, and he has no idea why. And I, I, I always appreciate just how open he is when he doesn't know something. He stumbles a bit and almost collapses, and then he puts that down to too many stimulants catching up with him. <laughs> he, he loves those stimulants. Stim- he's having extra ones, isn't he? He's not just doing it. Great, I can break out the stimulants finally. <laughs> <laughs> an excuse to break up the stimulants. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. No, but it's, you know, in terms of acting, it's like a nice little subtle, you know, it doesn't overdo it. Just looks yeah. a little bit like haggard and a bit like, you're really feeling like the crew is breaking down, really. Yeah. I know we're yeah. kind of, you know, we're, we're joking a fair bit in this one, but you do get a really good impression that the crew is breaking down and their situation is getting grimmer as time goes on. And then there's no clear, you know, solution still at this point. And we're halfway through, past halfway through. Yeah. Scott is because that everything's acting backwards and that the drain is still continuing. Uh, Spock feels that it's also logical to assume that something within the zone of darkness is the same thing that drew all the energy out of an entire solar system in the Intrepid, just you know, confirming every suspicion that we have as a viewer. And yeah. the analysis of the zone is that it's a negative energy field, but not the source of the power drain. So Kirk's postulating that this could be a shield of some kind and that there's perhaps a ship or something else deep inside. And so they, they decide to channel all the impulse and warp power into one massive thrust forward. And Scotty, being Scotty, you know, says, I captain, but I was of some power for the shields in case we don't make it out. And Spock points out that shields would only prolong their inevitable death if they don't escape. He's really blunt in this episode. Um, he is. He's, he's quite happy to tell you he hasn't got any information. So, you know, sorry, sorry, yeah. guys. And then he's just like, yeah, we're just going to die. You know, yeah. so, you know, but, but he is, um, he's not, you know, you, people need to hear this stuff. Yeah. You know, to, to get real sort of thing. That's it. And, and, and Kirk agrees wholeheartedly. And he says, uh, look, just use whatever power is necessary to get out of here. You know, shields be damned, basically. Um, and then he dismisses the crew. Spock stays behind and says that the crew of the Intrepid would have done all these things too, and even they didn't survive. But 
Kirk is pretty sure that maybe they didn't do all those things, given that Spock had already pointed out how illogical the situation was. There's a really bad run of uh, Vulcan man ships, isn't there, in Star Trek? I mean, one wants to play baseball. One that we know about as the crazed zombie Vulcans because of the Trellium uh, D um, that we see in Enterprise. And then there's another one that's mentioned just before that where everybody on the ship turned inside out because of the Delphic Expanse. So (laughs) don't go on. If we have a series based on a Vulcan ship only, just Vulcans, there's going to be some, you know... As, as Doc Brown says, you're going to see some serious S um, in, in in that show. So yeah, I, th- I think the only way you can get away with it is if it's a miniseries. Yeah, and they're going to be dead at the end of it, like <laughs> The Walking it. Dead, like Star Trek edition. So yeah, that's it. Vulcans and starships aren't a great combination, it seems, in the, the Star Trek universe. But I, I do like how he talks about how they wouldn't have logically assumed that they were dying. And that the collective memory of the Vulcans goes back so far that no Vulcan could ever conceive of a conqueror. And I'm, I'm, yeah. pretty, I'm pretty sure some colonies have probably been um, that stick? attacked in time. I can't remember. I try to think, have they been conquered? Obviously, the Romulans, they're just Vulcans that left. They didn't no. conquer or anything. I mean, the things you've got, the Andorians attacking Pajem and things like that. So yeah. there's definitely been colonies that have been attacked. Not but like I think a Cardassian just... kind of occupation like they did with Bajor. Yeah. Like nothing like, like that, I think. Yeah. Nothing actually on Vulcan itself. So yeah. it's kind of interesting to think that it, it's it's no wonder they're so superior-minded and, and self-confident. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he says they were astonished, almost like, oh, we're such like badasses that, yeah. um, you know, all the time that we will never get like defeated by anything. Um, yeah. They, they don't have any natural predator, effectively, is how they see themselves. Yeah. Even in space, you know, where, yeah. you know, lots of stuff goes down. They're, I think it's already, you know, in Enterprise, it's well established that Vulcans are... I mean, somebody didn't like the portrayal of Vulcans in Enterprise, that they're really arrogant and smug. I never thought of them as arrogant and smug. I just think they're very calm and blunt and logical, you know, because that's the way they are, and you just have to deal with that, you know. But, um, yeah, it's really, really interesting that a little bit of... a tiny bit of Vulcan lore is established mm. there with what Spock yeah. says. I, yeah. I also think it's a very intriguing insight into how they think because he says that one of the differences is that he knew that the ship was lost because he sensed it. He could sense a touch of death, which is an interesting way to put it. And then Kirk asks, what do you think they felt? And just with a single word, he just says astonishment. Yeah, the way Nalena Nimoy delivers the, this whole, um, you know, his part of this discussion is quite chilling. Because yeah. he's, you know, he's a Vulcan. He's just going to say, like talking about death and people dying. He just says it very bluntly and very Vulcan. But you could still feel there is a bit of an emotional thing behind. That's how brilliant and Nimoy is at playing Spock. You, uh, maybe we're projecting that onto him because that's how we would react. But you can, you, but yeah. you can still feel that emotion because he is half human. You know, so mm. he, he was obviously affected at the very beginning of the episode when all those Vulcans uh, went through the Force. He could feel that all those Vulcans died on um, Alderaan. <laughs> So he was like, yeah. So um, that's what the ship was called, the older one, I think, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, um, yeah. Again, brilliant. Just like great acting from Leonard Nimoy in this episode, and the way yeah. he, you know, he spot deals with this issue. Yeah, I, I I love the scene where Scotty and the rest of the engineering staff are scrambling around, like they're literally just running back and forward around engineering, just touching every button that's on the set, and. Scotty finally managed. It looks to get really rubbish, doesn't it? It looks. Like I was. I was watching them. I was watching them. Like, what is? What is that? Do this one dude is just like sliding stuff up and down. What could that possibly be controlling? 
you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it might just be repressurizing things, you know. Yeah, a bit of pumping action. You've got we've got a head can and that big time to, to like <laughs> to like be able to get 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 through that. It's it's obviously it's we're nitpicking, aren't we? We're, in, we're, oh, yeah. we're trekkies, yeah. you know. That's like is what is part of the job. But yeah, um, it did look a bit naff, probably because like obviously we're watching this on Humongo TV screens now, and be able to nitpick at this stuff and pause it and rewind it. It was never meant for that to happen, really. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it is kind of funny. It's it's not things I think you'd pick up on a very first viewing. This, this is definitely like yes yeah you know, this is the stuff you pick up because you've seen it and it's and it's also from the 60s as well so yeah we're like you know we're we're i mean there's always a bigger fish when it comes to trekkie so i'm not claiming we're like the biggest star trek fans but we're the sort of people that have, we've already watched these episodes like a billion times yeah. so we're, we well, our eyes will probably wander a bit more <laughs> than perhaps someone that's watching it for the first time. And I think that these days, a lot of TV production companies are very aware of how nitpicky people can be. And the attention yes. to detail is so much higher than it ever yep. was back then. The smallest thing on set, and they know that people on the internet will blow up about it. So there's definitely a difference there. Yeah, the director would have said if he even said anything to those extras, just go and do busy, look, look like you're doing busy stuff and you're panicking. Yeah, cool. Like, like the episode where the guy's... Be- twisting something with his bare hands but there's nothing he's actually touching he's just twisting air. yeah 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 exactly and um so yeah i mean now that they would actually probably have like scripts for people in the background that they have to do these specific things and the yeah. panels that they're touching would have little things that would come up that look like they're doing stuff those days it was press a button and look like it looks serious yeah um yeah <laughs> so they decided to apply all available power in the hopes of escaping the zone of darkness and everyone is holding on for dear life as the G-forces are shaking them around. Like they're gripping on uh, and being flung all over the place. The ship and crew completely shaken. And it didn't work. Scotty says that fighting against the pull and maintaining a station position is the only thing that they can do. And they're still losing power. And Spock doesn't know what it is that they're escaping from. But that it has found them. And this is when we see the yep. giant space amoeba, which looks great. Which is, I mean, that that entire passage of stuff you just said is kind of funny in a way. Yeah, like we don't know what we're we're escaping from. Oh, look, a giant space amoeba. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, um, you mentioned how it looks. It, they've barely changed it in like the, this no. remastered version. The original felt looked kind of cool. Um, I'm pretty mm. sure it was just food dye put in a, you know, in like a, ta- a water tank, which is 90% of all Star Trek effects. Um, yeah, but, um, it's, it's between two sheets of glass. That's how they did it. Yeah. Uh, a mixture looks- of different liquids. And as the sheets were moved around, the liquids would kind of flow and it would look as if the amoebas kind of pulsating. It was a, an optical effect created by Frank Vanderveer as well. Yeah. And, uh, and th- it was just a brilliant effect. Some of the best nebula-like effects have been done with liquids. Even the transport effect was done with liquid. Liquids are brilliant. Yeah, the stuff it does to like, like obviously like the big, the famous one would be the Mutara and Nebula and Star that's, Trek 2. That's the, yeah, exactly the one I was thinking of, actually. Yeah. 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 Food dying. And they use that same background plate in mm. like Best of Both Worlds and a ton of other like, like, like nebulary stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the effect looks great. It's super alien and weird. Um, and also intimidating and kind of beautiful and like, yeah. Um, and, and for something that isn't actually an amoeba, it's not like they've photographed an amoeba and then tried to superimpose it on. It still looks like an amoeba. Yeah, it does. It's clearly defined. But 
that you get a, the, like the, the sense of size. I mean, the sense of size was pretty well esta- uh, established in the original version. If you, anyone can see that now, mm. um, I'm sure it's probably. I don't know if you can flip to the original version on Netflix. No, I don't think you can. But um, yeah, it still looked great on the original version. But yeah, it's just a, it's still a great effect that looks you know it looks great now. And and the probe that they send out reveals that it's eleven thousand miles in length, and. Spot gives a biological breakdown from the results and ends it just saying, you know, that its condition is living. So, yeah, uh, Kirk uses magnification four. My favorite. I love when there's these old settings that uh, that get used. Magnification four. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> I would have gone for five personally. But... <laughs> oh, five. Uh, you wouldn't see any stars. I guess so. Yeah. Not that they can see stars anyway. Um, yeah. They're being drawn in the same way that the Intrepid was drawn into their death. And then it cuts to McCoy showing an amoeba. He's kind of giving a science lesson, which I, I love. And yeah. saying that that space amoeba is potentially even simpler despite being larger, which is... Yeah, it's a great little bit yeah. you actually get to see. I mean, some of them might not really know what an amoeba looks like, so they just flat out tell you in a quite a, you know, a, a, an, ex, an exposition dump, but not a, yeah. not a tedious one. Uh, it's no. actually a, has a lot of value and um, mm. just a nice bit of real science that's always great like uh, we mentioned about um you know in um the deadly years you know yeah. adrenaline being mentioned and all that stuff um I, I, I like it when they do that in the original series uh, when they sort of put real science in in, in then um to sort of help things increase the reality of the whole thing yeah it is just nice seeing that little video clip of just a zoomed in yeah real amoeba it's it's really cool I don't know if that was a new one that they've put in there. I can't remember if the old one was identical. Oh, that's a good point. It probably was the same one, I think. I would imagine so. It, yeah. it looked like it would have been one of the original things. So. Yeah, it didn't look super high res or anything, did it? It still looked no. kind of old school photography, but yeah. yeah. Maybe it'd be too garish if they had some mm. awesome looking, you know, super HD things. But yeah, I think it was probably a good choice to leave the original back in if that was what what they did. Yeah. I, I, I think as well that uh, it's interesting finding out that the crew may have actually died a little bit quicker on the Intrepid because Spock points out that they have a little bit more time because the amoeba would have been hungry back then. Now that it's eaten their ship and an entire solar system, uh, the Enterprise presumably just has more time before the next meal. I think what happened, yeah, when the Intrepid went in, it said, space amoeba hungry. (laughs) <laughs> and just basically sort of just ate it at that point. Again, yeah. lots of vibes of the the episode, the Voyager episode with the the, the weird alien monster that um, getting put bliss, bliss, um, yeah. like dragging people in and then eating them. And then um, again, like on also the cloud. Again, you've touched upon that, but that was more sort of accidentally, you know, going into an alien cr- creature. Yeah, um, one of them was predatory. The other one was reacting to having been invaded and penetrated and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, which again, great twists on a very similar idea. Yes, that changed things dramatically and emphasizes how influential this episode was on later Trek as well. Yeah, but there's a problem with the unmanned probes that they're sending out, and that's that it doesn't give them all the information that they need. McCoy's wanting to pinpoint some vulnerable spots using the shuttle, and when he said that, 
I immediately thought of Galaxy Quest and Tim Allen yelling at how it doesn't have any vulnerable spots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually think of that, but that's a really good, that's a really good point. Like, that does, it's the same, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> McCoy and Spock are arguing about who's the most qualified to go, and Kirk knows it's a suicide mission, so obviously he says he'll go, much to the disagreement of the other two, um, with the main what point being... Tom Paris. Yeah. Tom Paris would have been great. But the main point that they provide is that he's not a science specialist. It's like, no, that's that's why you can't go as captain. It makes complete sense for Spock to go in every way. I don't, don't see how McCoy could have really... It's just bravado a bit from him, I think, a little bit. But, yeah. but like, like coming from an honest place to help, but I yeah. think it's a little bit of bravado and like... And probably just does one other people to sacrifice. He feels like he's he's the most sacrificable person, perhaps. But yeah, it's not the best qualified. I think there's a bit of intrigue, a chance to see something that he normally wouldn't. And I think that that is something that really draws McCoy in. He touches upon it later, yeah. yeah. But Kirk retires to his quarters to leave a log of the situation. They've got like an hour and a half of power left. And he's <laughs> sorry just what just what you said there kirk retires to his quarters to leave a log <laughs> suppose it would you know this is a stressful situation. situation yes <laughs> thankfully you finished the sentence yeah that's, right after that. <laughs> that's his r&r time um and he points out that both are right both are capable and and asks which of my friends do i condemn to death and we've kind of touched on this in uh, in the previous episodes as well about that responsibility that he has as captain. And yeah. he asks Sparky McCoy to report to his quarters. And as they walk in, Scotty has messaged in saying that power's down a further 50%. So Kirk tells Scotty, and this is, this is one of the brilliant bits of dialogue as well that I, I think that was written for this episode, because he tells Scotty that McCoy will tell him what special equipment to put in the shuttle. And then he apologizes to, to Spock. And McCoy leaves saying that he'll go get some things that he'll need before he goes, to which Kirk points out that he's sorry to Spock because Spock is the most suited to the mission. And I was so with McCoy in thinking that McCoy had been the one picked. Yeah, the first time you had watched that, that was that was yeah. a great little bait and switch. You would you would think, oh, he's yeah, okay, he's turning. Um, but it was a great. Uh, now we're looking back at it. There's no reason why Kirk would have said it in that way. Really, he probably just flat out just said, "Sorry, sorry, Bones, but Spock's got to go." But in terms of the drama, to to at least you know add a bit of drama to what what is a fairly simple thing of telling I, someone they're going, it did it in a. It was a really good way to do it. I, I argue that a little bit, though. I think it's more him trying to figure out how best to break the news. Yeah, maybe that's how he felt was the best way, yeah. Yeah, he's just kind of like, I don't know how I tell, which you're like, uh, he's obviously relaying the message to Scotty, but he's just trying to build up the apology to Spock for it. Um, but the, the weird thing is he's apologized for saying, but they were both eager to go, which is the weird thing. But of course, that's not what Kirk wants. But I love the continuing dialogue and the banter and the rivalry between the two of them over this, because Spock is saying, do not suffer so, Doctor. This is not the first time superior capability has proven more valuable than professional credentials. <laughs> and McCoy says, yeah. nothing has been proven yet, Spock. And it's just this, this yeah. constant fight between them. And McCoy believes that Spock is not prepared to let him share in this discovery. And so the, there's, they are really butting heads. And I can't remember what it was that Spock was telling him to believe in. Like, it's something, a, a Vulcan way of, uh, of thinking, which 
McCoy wasn't really sure how to do because he's not Vulcan. So Spock asks him to employ one of his own superstitions to wish him luck. Yeah, and he doesn't say it. I'm like, dude. No, he just he he watches as Spock walks out, boards the Galileo. Yeah. And then just out of range, just after the door's closed, McCoy then just says, good luck, Spock. So Spock never hears it. Yeah. But he does kind of say it. He, he, He reluctantly eventually succumbs to to doing so but it's great to see the galileo again yeah kirk's decision is based purely on you know what would result in the most successful outcome yeah um, in terms of who descended it's obviously spock and that's a completely logical captain highly qualified captain decision to make yeah i think it really strengthens his character as well that he was able to he didn't really stew over it for ages obviously the you know like he just you know it seems like it was a matter of maybe half an hour um, or something, you know, um, before he was actually told Spock he's going. Um, and yes, we do get to see the Galileo, that poor shuttlecraft that gets an absolute pounding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when it departs, we see that the, that interior is less empty than it was in previous episodes like the Galileo 7. And I think that this is probably likely due to them saying that it's been specially equipped because it looks like all the seating area that was really spacious and really quite bare has been replaced with equipment and right behind Spock is like an engineering style mesh behind him as well, which is likely hiding a lot more of the other stuff behind Yeah, him. I think he told, um, maybe Scott, was it Scotty to prepare the shuttlecraft or something? Yeah. So I think they, so they literally signed scientific it out um, <laughs> and then added like those, which is a nice touch. They, didn't, they, yeah. they could have easily just taken the quick route and not bothered. You know, maybe no one would notice, but... You can clearly see, certainly if you remember the Galileo 7, which we covered, of course, yeah. um, that they've done that. And that's a nice touch, I think, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's also the last time we actually ever even see the shuttle's interior in the series. Yeah, that's right. You know, season three, you don't even see it again, which is almost a shame. Um, yeah, 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 we don't. We don't see really a shuttlecraft again um, significantly in the original series universe, probably until Star Trek V? I'm, I'm thinking, actually, which is also the... Oh, it's not the same Galileo, but no. yeah. I mean, we see him in Next Generation, of course, but yeah. Yeah, the original series has the pods that take them to the ship and stuff. And yes. That, uh, and things, but yeah, in terms of actual proper shuttles, you do see shuttles arriving in the motion picture as well. Yes, but they're kind of like space dock, like, like um, maintenance sort of, you know, and building stuff, aren't they? But a, a, well, they've got the standard... worker bees and things, but yeah, the, yeah. But there are, they're still when... Um, uh, when Kirk's arriving at Starfleet, there's it's almost like a bus terminal, yes. or train terminal, but with shuttles and, and things. But again, it's it, it's not like the focus isn't on the shuttles in the same way. Oh, as in is, terms yeah. of a bog standard USS Enterprise, yeah, you know, autonomous ship, shuttlecraft. I think it's literally Star Trek yeah. Five, yeah, with the Galileo again in that. <laughs> and then, then you have the shuttle getting hit, and it survives with very little energy to spare. And as Spock's kind of explaining all of this, he just obviously has to throw in, oh, and Dr. McCoy, you would not have survived it. <laughs> McCoy's yeah. like, you want to bet? <laughs> they just, they're continuing this rivalry, which is in, hilarious. In this, like, completely in this kind of like really dang perilous situation. <laughs> They're still managed. But this I love this banner is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. It's one of the most best things about the original series. And um, yeah. And it is as much of a rivalry as it is, because you know the characters, you know that there is a deep love and mutual respect between the two of them, and that it is playful banter. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is nice to see Spock doing as well. I think that it kind of shows how far Spock has come by this point. 
certainly since like the Galileo Seven, for example, and that yeah. how his relationship has developed with Kirk and McCoy um, as well. That's and, a good yeah. point. Yeah, and we even kind of said back then that that's kind of where a lot of that seemed to really start to begin and solidify yeah. in terms of that respect yeah. and, and things. So, if, if anything, this is kind of seeing where that has accumulated and, and arrived at, which is really neat. Yeah. Spock discovers that the organisms store enough energy for a reproductive process to commence. Uh, imagine being in the middle of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be like the Q, that's for sure. Or Elegium. Yeah, well, that as well, yeah. That was, that was very clammy. <laughs> oh, there was lots of uh, 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 stuff. <laughs> that's an episode we need to cover. I apologize to everybody listening right now. But yeah, the, the, the idea of there being multiple of these things is suddenly front and center, and that is a, a terrifying thought. And as the comm signal deteriorates, they lose contact. The ship shakes, and there's a very odd li weird line from Kirk, because he's excited that the ship has just been impacted and has shaken, because... To him, that means that Spock's still alive, saying he's kicked the side. Yeah, that was really presumptuous. Yeah, to just yeah. let them know that he's alive. What's to say that he didn't just accidentally veer off course and smash into the side and he's now dead? I didn't buy that. Or no. just a random, like, you know, like eddy or, or like sort of shockwave that came through yeah. from, you know. There's nothing, how would you know just from like getting nudged that that's specifically yeah. Spock doing some, something? But okay, whatever. And something comes up later, and we're gonna we're gonna touch back on this point because it, there is a weird bit that comes up that ties into this. But it is clear that they need to kill this organism before it multiplies enough to consume the galaxy, which, to me, poses a question of where did it come from? Like, is this something that just started off small and just expanded to this ridiculous size? Are there more of them? I don't know if it would have survived a journey from another galaxy where there is nothing to consume. One would imagine. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's not really any kind of threads to pick up from that, is there at all in this? No. And they kind of, this is a time when an episode would just smash the reset button at the end. Um, so it's not touched upon again. But it's great the way McCoy says that we're potentially just the antibodies in the body of the galaxy that are just here to just destroy these um, um, space amoebas who are just like, like a virus. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, that's a really interesting, like, it also gives an emphasis to how tiny we are and insignificant almost, you yeah. know, compared to the galaxy. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and that's straight after in his quarters because just before then, Spock sends a message to them saying, tell Dr. McCoy he should have wished me luck, which, yeah. you know, he, he did. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. A heartbreaking line, yeah. But Kirk and McCoy are in a quarter, and like you said, McCoy says it's like a virus invading the body of our galaxy. And Kirk asks how many cells there are in the human body, which is millions. And yeah. so he kind of points out, well, the virus is 11,000 miles long and it's one cell. When it grows into millions, we'll be the virus invading its body. And Yeah, so there'd be an interesting flip around there. Yeah, and yeah. It's, a, it's a neat conversation because McCoy's saying, well, there's a thought. Here we are, the antibodies of our own galaxy attacking an invading germ. I mean, they're kind of just a little throwaway lines, but they're really interesting existential kind of yeah. thought. And um, it feels like yeah. the kind of realistic conversation these two kind of people would have as well, just bouncing these ideas back. And Kurt picks up on that idea of antibodies. And it starts to wonder, like, what would happen if they cut engine thrust and rerouted all power to shields? Scotty points out that they would just get be pulled in, 
So he orders it. And between the stimulants and the pressure, McCoy's kind of looking and going, you should probably stay off your feet for a few seconds. And Kirk knows he doesn't have that long. So he just ignores it and heads to the bridge. That's it, Cat James T. Kirk there. Yeah. And then another classic James T. Kirk, he orders the ship to penetrate the organism. That's something he has done many times <laughs> in his career. The ship enters. And <laughs> <laughs> there's all these trippy effects, which, yeah. again, look incredible inside. And uh, and I'm sure that now with it being remastered, it looks even better. What's your kind of memories of the original version of this? Uh, I'm not sure I have any strong ones, yeah. to be honest. I think it was literally just zooming into like the amoeba effect. Yeah, I can't really remember how much is kept original from how it looked from the because it's just been so long since i've seen it yeah I, I probably haven't watched the like sat down and purposely watched the entire episode from start to finish i probably caught bits of it over the last 20 something odd years mm. but the last time i probably sat down to watch it i was probably like maybe a teenager i mean i know i've watched this episode dozens of times but yeah um so i i couldn't remember now yeah and this is one of the reasons we love the show is because we're going back and finding all those little gems that we are the ones that we don't go to very often, the ones that exactly, we, yeah, or, or the ones that we used to watch to death as a kid, and then because we watched them so much, we've kind of laid off them a little bit, and so yeah. it's really nice to revisit these after uh, after all this time, especially TOS, which yeah, probably haven't seen for many couple of decades, which makes you feel really old, but yeah, <laughs> um, it's true, it really is true. But they they can't use the phases because it feeds off of energy. So Kirk suggests anti power, which sounds incredibly stupid until he says that it has a negative charge and everything works in reverse and that they'll use antimatter and scotty's expression completely mimicked my emotions of it of going from that's really stupid to actually yeah antimatter that makes perfect sense that is effectively what you're talking about when you're talking anti-power and obviously antibodies and stuff it's that's obviously where that's all come from and as a viewer, you get that realization with Scotty about the same time. You know, that's the penny it. Drops. It's like, yeah. it's like, oh, right, okay, it doesn't sound quite so stupid as I thought it did. Um, yeah. But they have to fire the probe at point blank range because it could otherwise drift away too far. And just beforehand, before doing this, obviously they're trying to get things ready. Kirk asks for another stimulant, and McCoy isn't sure that's does. a good idea but kirk's like i just need to get it together for another seven minutes it's turning into janeway who was always after the coffee <laughs> that's it. like, so. <laughs> it's important for captains they need oh. stimulants yeah yeah uh spark completely cut off now is, is leaving a log on the shuttle and he's seen the enterprise drift into the amoeba and as i think any sane person would believes them to be about to die he doesn't believe they're dead yet but he he feels that that's exactly what's about to happen to them, that it's now inevitable. And, and similarly, Kirk is also leaving his own log, giving commendations to the senior crew, including Spock, specifically, whom he believes has now died in the line of duty, which takes me back to that point that I mentioned earlier, that he just thought that Spock was alive because he just crashed into the side of yeah. the ship. And now he's now just he's like, dead. he's dead. And I think that something's been lost there, maybe in an edit. Or yeah, something, but it yeah. doesn't quite feel right. I feel like something is missing from that. I mean, you either have it where he just thinks he's dead straight away or he thinks he's alive. I mean, to be honest, it would have helped 
if perhaps someone said after a scan, oh, we, we've detected the shuttlecraft or something, um, or that thing that kicked us must be, could only be from the shuttlecraft doing this or that, then it'd be like, oh, great, it's alive, but we didn't get we didn't get any of that. I think it's just a bit of an oversight, I think. Yeah, maybe the stimulants have kicked in enough for him to realize, like, oh, actually, yeah, that was probably Spock dying. Perhaps, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They have a great death realization effect. Stimulants, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plot realization effect. Yeah. So a phrase I don't get to use very often: the probe is locked in the nucleus. And uh, probably the only podcast you'll ever use that. Really, I know, I know. Fine. The ship reverses out, and we get the really tense battle music that really ramps up, and it oh, is yeah, really yeah. good music that yeah. I, I think really drives just how much strain and pressure there is in this. It's, it's very similar to the music they have during Kirk and Spock's fight. Legendary music. Yeah, yeah. But There's that is- great video on the internet of the uh, the fight music, which is like someone had, uh, there was a video on the internet of a crab holding a knife. Oh, I've seen, seen that around. one, yes. And someone put the uh, the Star Trek uh, fighting <laughs> music to it. And it works really well. Like there's some alien with a, an alien crab with a knife <laughs> walking around. So. Anybody who has seen that, that. Watch, put on, on YouTube like Crab with Knife Star Trek. It, you'll be cracking up. It, it's amazing. I'll try and add it to the show notes as well. Splice, splice in like the music or something as well. <laughs> it's, it's, the best, it's the best music, yeah. It's in Futurama as well. There's a great Futurama uh, moment where um, Fry is about to do. Uh, he's on. He's on um, Zoidberg's planet, um, mm. and because um, Zoidberg's had to go back home to mate, but it turns out um, Zoidberg's girlfriend actually likes Fry, and they have to do a battle to the death to decide who Fry's uh, uh, Zoidberg's girlfriend gets with. And then uh, the, the the senior um, chief of Zoidberg's race is uh, who's looking. At, who's overseeing this battle between Fry and Zoidberg says, now everybody please stand for the national anthem. And and it's the Star Trek fight music. <laughs> and and Fry hears it and he goes, uh-oh. <laughs> like, he knows exactly what that music means. <laughs> well, it's great, yeah. Brilliant. The drama's brilliant. For Star Trek <laughs> yeah. That's another show that I need to rewatch at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. They detect a metallic object and they figure it's Spock, so they try to hail him. And Spock tells them not to risk the ship rescuing him. And McCoy just immediately interjects with, shut up, Spock, we're rescuing you. Oh, and, I love that as well. And yeah. then the, this has been a, a meme that's kind of been in a gif that's been thrown around a lot where he just immediately, after saying we're rescuing you, he just gives this knowing nod to Kirk and Kirk gives this knowing nod back. And that's certainly yeah. been used a lot for, for a lot of gifs for just the, the head nods. There's even a great one of them uh, passing a ball to each other just by heading it. Between oh, yeah, them. yeah, there's, yeah. There's tons of gifts of that. I mean, Deep Space Nine season six was pretty good with the gifts. Yeah, but the original series, that and the face palming from Next Generation. Yeah, um, it, it's up there with those. Yeah, that, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So classic moment that I think a lot of people recognise. But I just love yeah. that straight after that, Spock chimes in. Well, well, thank you, Captain McCoy. <laughs> really yeah. giving that undercutting. Yeah, yeah. And Scotty comes in with. Uh, Power levels are dead, sir. The worst nightmare of Scotty right there, I think. Yeah, and and Kirk, phenomenal line. You may have just written our epitaph, Mr. Scott. Yeah. It's a beautiful line, that one. Yeah. And the, the look of death on like all this, this, all the life drains out of Scotty's face yeah. when it's just the power, the power levels are gone. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then by the same time, Kirk throws two tractor beams on Spock's shuttlecraft. I'm like, come on, dude, that's going to... 
put one on it, you know, that, that'll be all right. And probably momentum will throw it the, the rest of the way. That's what yeah. did it. <laughs> and, and when the probe explodes, this is one of the, the best things about this show being made in the 60s. You never see the explosion. It's all from within the ship. We only see the, the yeah. crew being shaken around. And I think that works so much more effectively. You didn't need to, yeah. You didn't no. need to. You, got a, you were perfectly... You, you, it was clear to you the impact of this explosion was massive. Um, just by, yeah. I mean, it, it, I was watching it and I thought, oh yeah, look at Kirk just wobbling around a little bit in his chair, where everybody else is literally flying around, falling, falling out, uh, around, and everything. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, you, you didn't need anything else. It was perfectly clear, you know, that this was a huge explosion. Yeah, yeah. And if you were in, on the crew, that's all you would see as well. You would just know that this is going to be bad. And you would only get to see all of that happening. I, I think it just works so much better. But there's no way they could have done it in the 60s. Absolutely no way. Oh. And they didn't attempt to um, add anything in, in the remastered version as no. well. They no. put some cool explosion, external shot of the Enterprise being flung out or something. And yeah. they kept it literally as it was, and it worked perfectly. Didn't need anything else, really. You don't even, I don't even, I'm watching it, I don't even think, oh, they should have put in a spliced in a, a big explosion no. in that. It works p perfectly. Um, I, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I think it's just... It's, I, I love the team that worked on it. I really do. Yeah. I think they did just a phenomenal job just be, staying true to the original. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the view screen they turn on, because it's been off for some reason. I just don't think they wanted to see their, their death. But yeah. they turn the view screen on, and it shows stars and no signs of the amoeba. And Chekhov confirms that the organism has been destroyed. And the shortcraft has also somehow survived and requests permission to come aboard. Time for a Dr. Pepper and a biscuit. Yes, that's it. <laughs> so Kirk is like, Spock, you're alive. You know, very excited. Yeah. And Spock, just deadpan, obviously, Captain. And I have some fascinating yeah. data on the organism. McCoy interjects with, don't be smart, Spock. You botched the, acet like the acetylene, acetylene test. Something yeah. like that. Um, well, I was a kid, I didn't know what he meant by that. I was like, what does that mean? Are I they, know. They, does he mean one of the tests he ran in the shuttlecraft, or is it some kind of funny catchphrase or something? No, I think it's just one of the tests that they were wanting to look at. And, yeah. um, and having a look online, like the dictionary definition is a compound which occurs throughout the nervous system in which it functions as a neurotransmitter. So they're obviously just trying to check just how this creature functions physically. Okay, a nice little bit of real science then, again, thrown yeah. in. Yeah, do it in a kind of a, a throwaway way. Yeah, but in a realistic way. Yeah, yeah. But he botched cool. it in the same way that I completely botched the pronunciation of it. So, oh yeah, I think we both did. Yeah, <laughs> acetylcholine. DeForest Kelly could just like rail off those um, those crazy uh, crazy lines yeah. like like easily. That's how brilliant yeah. he is. Yeah, I, I love that that Kirk's in on this entire rivalry between. He's like just just later later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be still, my child. <laughs> so they lay in a course for Starbase 6, and he repeats an earlier line where he says he's still looking forward to rest and relaxation on some planet. So, Riser. Obviously, Riser. 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 Yeah, yeah. Riser. Um, and as he's saying this, he's completely fixated on the female crewman that's on the bridge with him. Yeah, and he's, a little, he did, a creepy, isn't it? A little, little, yeah, bit, little bit creepy. Very leering glances, and then he turns and he laughs with Scotty and McCoy. Apparently, that scene was entirely uh, improvised by Shatner. Um, oh, God. Yeah. And it's not exactly subtle. And 
when I was watching, I was just thinking like, oh, the sixties. That hasn't aged, is it? And I think he does it no. at the start. Does it at the start when they? Because it's kind of a bookend, isn't it, to that first scene when he's saying he wants to go to Risa. Yeah. Uh, well, a planet. Yeah, he's just um, it's a repeat of that line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you know, um, sorry guys, you know, we didn't. This is the sixties. It's a different time. Um, doesn't make it right or anything. Mm. Unfortunately, the yeoman kind of position was always like some, you know, very um, young woman. Um, and often there was a hint of like, you know, Captain Kirk or would, you know, give them a lingering look or something unless there was some absolute peril going on at that particular point in time. Obviously, there was Yeoman Rand was a recurring character for a handful of episodes in the first season. And there was an, a hint of a romance between Kirk and like Yeoman Rand potentially thankfully yeah. Yeoman Rand came back in the movies and uh in uh, Voyager which was uh well the one the episode that was had Star Trek 6 in it but yeah flashback it's yep. kind of yes flashback um but it's oh yeah it's just a symptom of of of, of the 60s and unfortunately a bit of misogyny that creeps in yeah, uh, yeah. into some of these episodes Given that Shatner improvised this he's probably like there wasn't an alien for me to leer longingly at so yeah, exactly. let's just squeeze this in. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not very like I I, I mean I, we we know now that people in the twenty third century certainly by the twenty fourth but I think by the twenty third they're evolved beyond being creepy weirdos. Um, <laughs> but you know when when I was a kid watching it, I was like oh old oh, James you 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 cad. But now yeah. I do genuinely like cringe at that a little bit. Yeah, it doesn't ruin the episode or anything, but it does leave a bit of a. It gives you a bit of a cringe feeling. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. Like you, you can't help but just think, oh, the sixties. Like that's the only thing about it is that it's just very stereotypical of the time. But, yeah, I mean, but the like, if it was terrible. if it was made now, it would be awful. It'd be an oh, awful yeah, way to yeah. do it. Yeah, the cage as as a as a. As a an awful example where like like Captain Pike says, Oh, I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge or something. <laughs> yes. Um, it's just like, whoa. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> and then he has us to apologize to number one. Like, yeah. oh sorry, like you forgot she was a woman or something. It was just like, you know, again, you watch it now and you really cringe hard at that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. It's, it's all the context of the time. As you said, it doesn't mean it makes it right, but it's uh context is always important for, for yes. things like these. Um indeed. And Something that I found interesting was that this is the first episode that ends with a Paramount television logo underneath the Desilu logo. Now, when I was reading this on Memory Alpha, it says instead of, but it's not instead of. Oh, right. You still have the Desilu logo, but it, it, it does still say Paramount television beneath because this is the first time an episode had aired after Desilu was sold to Paramount Pictures. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Paramount wasn't wasn't at the start necessarily, was it, of Star Trek? Um, it came in, uh, as I say, with the second season. So, yeah, um, yeah. a portion of the second se- season we're into at this point. Um, it's funny because you just think of Paramount, you think of Star Trek, really, don't don't you? Yeah. CBS as well, obviously, these days. But, um, yeah, uh, that's an interesting little production fact there, yeah. Whenever I think of old Trek, like, Paramount is always the big company that I always link it to. You know, CBS and Viacom have always been kind of like more the new stuff. But Paramount, even though they really only have the movie licenses these days, I, it, their their logo was just on everything. Like especially all the VHSs that we grew up with, but, you know, to refer back to uh, the stuff we were talking about before. Paramount was just such a huge, huge portion of that. And so it is, yeah, just a, you like got- you said, it's a nice milestone. Yeah, and you've got um, like the logo would evolve. I mean, like a good thing of that is the movies. You know, you watch all the movies. They have the whatever current version of the Paramount logo 
um, yeah. from just being a very basic, you know, mountain uh, with a black, a blue, a blue background, all the way to like hitting Star Trek Five, and there's like a CG sort of stars flying in, all the way up to well, the you know the Kelvin timeline films. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really important part of you. Kind of think of that mountain logo, don't you, when you think of Star Trek? It's so prominent. Yeah, and, but and it I, wasn't there from day one. Is an interesting thing. Yeah, and it's it's also kind of like growing up with Star Trek, even with the Paramount logos that existed before we were born, we still grew up with those. So we kind of feel like we've kind of grown up with the evolution of Paramount as it's gone on because it's all just so tightly yeah. linked with, with these shows. Yeah. Well, interesting fact as well, I've just noticed, um, it's the last episode where Kirk wears his green wraparound tunic. Oh, wait. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So he goes, I, I guess he just wears the, just the regular uniform from this point on yeah uh, which is interesting i guess we wouldn't see it again technically until archer puts it on um, in, yeah uh, or mirror uh, archer put, puts it on in yeah. uh, the mirror universe set of episode yeah and technically not the same one <laughs> Just, oh, but yes. that's that style of uh, of uh, of one because obviously a different ship but um yeah apparently it's available in, on all ships that particular little top yeah so yeah yeah, which yeah. also makes you wonder, why did he stop wearing it? Did he just fall out of favor with it? Did it uh, suddenly get decommissioned as part of the uniform? It was an odd-looking thing, wasn't it? It looked yeah. like, a, like a very casual thing that a, that a captain would wear. Yeah. So they thought it looked a bit too casual, perhaps. And I think it may also just be that in season one, it was supposed to be green in the same way that the original series uniform was supposed to be green, but they came out looking gold because of the way that the material reflected the lighting on the camera. So it could the, be a technical thing, yeah. Yeah, so really, they all should have been green, and it shouldn't have been any different. Um, and I think it's just because the command uniforms were synonymous with being gold in color, just because that's how the lighting made them appear, it probably just was easier just to go, well, let's just stop with the green because it doesn't really make much sense as a colour. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, ca captains do wear alternate things. I mean, we yeah. see that. Picard's is the best. Captain Picard's got his jacket. Yeah, his jacket's the best one. Yeah, and then in, uh, like, Captain Kirk wears Scotty's, like, jacket in Star Trek V. <laughs> you mentioned the that last time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. Although weirdly, when you get to like uh, the grey uniform or the grey shoulder pad uniform, there's not really any variations on that, really. No, um, the, yeah. the boring grey pajamas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the motion yeah. picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, we'll have an entire Trek lifestyle on uniform stuff. But yeah, that's yeah. the last time we see Kirk's little wraparound. Nice. Well, that wraps up this episode of Long Range Sensors. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions for us, let us know by emailing us at longrangesensors at iCloud.com. And of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Star Trek LRS. If you enjoy the show and would like to help support us, please consider subscribing to us on Patreon. By doing so at any tier, you'll get access to our private Discord channel, a chance to vote on future episodes, and access to bonus content. This also includes our new companion series for subscribers called Subspace Live a live show where you'll be able to hang out with us as we discuss all of the fantastic new Star Trek shows that are currently airing. Find out how you can join to get these exclusive benefits and more by visiting patreon.com slash longrangesensors. But of course, one of the best ways you can help support the show is to let others know that we exist. Telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or kicking the side of a ship like Spock to let them know we're here goes a really long way to help us grow the show. 
My name is Alastair, and you can find out everything I'm up to online by checking out my website at alastairmcfly.com. You can also follow me at Alastair McFly on Twitter, and you might even catch me on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash Alastair McFly. Trev, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Um, and also, if you enjoy modern and retro video games, you can actually check out my other podcast, Console Shock, uh, which you can find at consoleshock.net and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where we hope you'll never be in need of an excessive amount of stimulants. Music